This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Drive to deep center field, going back Hernandez at the track, right to the wall, gone! Elvis Andrews! And 29 other MLB clubs. High drive, deep left field, Aminio left the building. Guerrero lifts one to left field, and gone! Otani, that was a moonshot out there in the right center. Alonzo defends his title, the 2021 Derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe from OPS Plus to juiced balls to game-changing moments. We have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. Here's Chris and It's Townsend. going to be a very special day of A's Cast Live. There's no question about it. You know, normally at this time, we would be talking about playoff baseball because last night was a very entertaining game. Dodgers are moving on, so it's set in the NLCS. It is going to be the Dodgers up against the Braves. They'll be starting at Dodger Stadium. And tonight, it's the Cheaters up against the Cheaters starting in Houston, where it's the Red Sox up against the Astros. Hard to root for any of those teams. But as I've said in the past, if the devil was playing the Red Sox, if the devil was playing the Astros, I'm, I'm taking the devil. So we'll see how that is going to play out. I think both series will be very entertaining. It was entertaining last year between the Bravos and the Los Angeles Dodgers. It is It has been some hardcore competition so far in this year's playoffs. It's been really good. And whoever comes out of this four, it's the final four, if you want to call it. Whoever comes out of that final four, it's going to be a great World Series. There is no question about it. And the trend that we keep seeing is the teams that rely so much on the home run don't end up moving on. But we're not going to talk very much about the Astros and the Red Sox. We're not going to talk much about the Dodgers and the Giants last night. Uh, obviously, a historic game. I think a lot of people will agree the way the game ended was not right. But, you know, that's part about being a champion. I mean, if anything that Giants fans should know, and there are probably not a lot of them listening right now, don't forget all the breaks you got in 10, 12, and 14. You got a ton. Last night, you didn't get one. And that's part about, you know, how... You know, winning a championship, sometimes there's a little luck and sometimes there's a little bad luck that knocks you out. You know, it was just the other day, the anniversary of Jeremy Giambi not sliding. And you look back and you look at the footage of Jeter coming and he comes across the field and he flips it to Posada. And you just wonder, like, if we had better cameras then and we had replay then, was he safe? Was he really safe that the Yankees just got the call? So that happened last night to the Giants. And the other thing that I was thinking last night when I was trying to go to bed was Cody Bellinger's hit that led to the run for the Dodgers in the ninth inning. You want to talk about live by the sword and die by the sword? If they played regular defense, straight-up defense, 
Now, one of these general managers would say, yeah, but Chris, here's the percentages of when we do shift, it works. That's great. I get it. It's like in football. I can blitz you all game long, and it's working, but one bad blitz could cost you the game. The Giants are going home because Bellinger hit a routine ground ball. A routine ground ball to second base. But the way they were shifting, they're now going home because of it. But more importantly today, and I thought it was very classy, I didn't get to see it. Uh, the San Francisco Giants did a moment, moment of silence for Ray. And I thought that was very, very classy by them. And I thought, you know, yesterday I got to hear uh, uh, them talk about Ray on MLB Radio, Sirius XM. For me, it's XM Channel 89. And then they also talked about him on the MLB Network. And I think, like, today is such the perfect day to do this because we've had time. You know, we learned about this as A's employees of the passing of the great Ray Fossey. It was really right after the show. I got done with the show on Wednesday. I went inside. What games, Cody, were Wednesday? Do we have games Wednesday? Yeah, we had games Wednesday, right? No, there was none because there was supposed to be game five of the White Sox and Astros. and Tinsel. Oh, that's right. That was the, that was the thank God we survived 12-plus hours yeah. on Tuesday. Yeah. We needed a day off on Wednesday. I was watching something, and Delaire, our boss, gave me a call, and I found out, and it was just it was heartbreaking. You know, because to us, who Ray Fossey is as a man, you just never thought there would be – an A season without Ray Fossey. Because he has meant so much to this organization as a player, as a guy in the community, as a public speaker, and then, of course, all the years as a broadcaster on television and radio. And you never thought that there would not be a season. And the same thing, I never thought I'd go to a game and I'd sit down and I wouldn't hear Dick Callahan. So we've lost two Giants. And Ray has meant so much to so many people for so many years. Just not as a great player. As you know, when he would come on here, Ray Fossey has been on Ace Cast Live more than anybody. Not only times, but also the amount of time. And I would always say two-time World Series champion, two-time Gold Glove winner, Two-time All-Star. And it's sad. And we've all got to know him so well, and he means so much to all of us in so many different ways. And we're going to have some guys on today that's got to be tough, because Vince Catronio at 1.30, Ken Korak at 2.30, and then, of course, Glenn Kuyper, his partner, at 3.30. I mean, these guys have traveled the country we traveled the world with him, if you want to talk about Japan. And how much these guys have spent with him, hours and hours on planes and buses. And all right, you know, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of fake guys. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people that I'll pay you to be my play-by-play -play guy. I'll pay you to be my color guy. And you're going to show up to the ballpark every single day. God, I'm starting to get hot. Um, you'll show up to the ballpark every single day. And you'll act like you care. Because you're getting paid. 
you'll act like this matters to you. And then when you get your next job opportunity, and I'm not hating on anybody, that's just the nature of the beast, right? Whatever whatever company you work for, you want to be a company man. And the next company you go to work for, well, now you're, you're all in on that company because that's who's paying you. That was never Ray Fossey. Ray Fossey was never fake. He was all in every year, every day. He'd go in that clubhouse. He'd talk to those players. He'd try to pump players up. Ray, it, it meant something to him. He loved A's baseball. He loved Bob Melvin. He loved coming to the yard every day. There was a point as Ray was getting into his 70s, because I, I had a lot of private conversations with Ray. He never, ever, ever wanted to take a day off. It drove him nuts when most guys his age are starting to look like, hey, I'll take, you know, I'll take this week off. I'll miss that road trip. I, you know, Ray, unless it was his anniversary or maybe it was a birthday of his grandson or one of his grandkids, Ray wanted to work every single day. As he would always say, I have the off season to recharge my battery. He loved working and he loved working A's baseball. And whether you're going to put him on television or you're going to put him on radio, he was all about it. And that guy cared so much about the game and the way he studied the game. I mean, his, his, his scorebook was meticulous. He's the only guy in our game that had catcher's blocks in his scorebook. Like a, a catcher blocks a ball, you go, great. No, for Ray, that meant something. And he's checking, like, was the guy on third, second? What? I mean, he had all these notes. He had all these things that he did. And I went, most former players just show up. Hey, I'm a former player. I was really good. And I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm going to go home. That wasn't Ray. Ray listened to A's cast live. Ray listened. when I mean, it was like funny. You know, Ray was like, don't tell anybody, Townie, but I'm able to get you down here in Arizona. I'm like, well, yeah, don't let's not tell anybody yet. <laughs> Ray listened to the A's clubhouse show on the way home. I can't tell you like years ago on like different radio stations. I'd show up to like I always saw Ray. I'd go down to he, he had this little office. Well, first is he had this office down below uh, by the weight room. And then he had an, they put him up top and I'd always go by and see him. And he'd always say, like, oh, I love that caller last night. Oh, I love how many guys, how many broadcasters do you think are really listening to the postgame show on the way home? Think about it. How many guys, how many guys do you really think are grinding the postgame show on the way home? Not many. Honestly, not, not many. <laughs> unless they're on it, unless they're on it, they they're not listening. They're going home. They're probably listening I mean, unless to music. They can hear the, unless they can hear their own voice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. They, they're probably listening to music on the way home or calling their wife or, or their kids or someone on the phone on the way home. I mean, we used to do, the, you know, when we were doing the show from the field, and we still do, uh, COVID off obviously knocked us out, but we're back now. But it would be hilarious that we would be – doing the show and next thing Ray would get on the field and he start coming down the left field line and what would he say almost every day 
Middle of, middle, middle of an interview, it didn't matter. All you hear is you see Fossey walk. Townie! Hey, hey, Townie! I heard you last night, Townie. And it's like, I'm like, I pull the heads up. Ray, we're on the air. Oh, Townie! And it's like, oh. <laughs> just just the, uh, the the yelling, everything. Like, it, it didn't matter if we were on the air, off the air. It, was, it, it never changed. And you're right. I mean, that was one of the things I look forward to every day when we went to the ballpark was to see when Ray was going to come down and start yelling your name uh, and how far away it would be before he noticed that we were on the air or not on the air. <laughs> and then he, and a lot of times he'd just come over and pick up the headset and – and if anybody loved the idea of Moray's baseball and Moray's content, it was Ray Fossey. We did a half hour every single week with him in the offseason. You know, during the pandemic when he couldn't do his interviews, I'm like, why don't you just come on with me? And we, we did that for every single game last year and majority of this year before he truly got sick. And he was private about it because I've had a lot of people text me and they go, how long have you guys known? I'm like, well, we, I don't like to, I, 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 I don't want to get into details, but when it came down to the end for his time doing broadcasting, we didn't know. Now, for us, seeing him every day where he would come down and get in the booth, you started to see he was regressing. But it wasn't, it wasn't his mind. It wasn't his speech. It was his body. It was his legs. You know, all of a sudden he's got a cane and, you know, Ray was a very private man. And to see that was tough. Yeah, because it started getting to you. You started seeing it as the season went on and you, you, you kind of noticed. I always just thought, you know, he's getting in his 70s, so he's just. Aging. I mean, more than anything, he's he's aging. I mean, that's what happens when you get older. And then we found out, you know, you know, eventually what was going on, and that's just who Ray was. He never wanted to let people know what was really going on because he didn't want people. I, I, essentially, he didn't want people feeling sorry for him, and I, I always respected that about him. That's yeah. His I got all these stories. You know, when I was on the road with the team, he always made me sit next to him. <laughs> I'll never forget. So. I, I I had an issue, and my heart was going so fast, and freaked out, called my doctor, something's wrong. They got me into this cardiologist, this specialist in San Jose, and it's an A's game. <laughs> and I called my boss at 95.7, and I go, hey, listen, I got to go see this guy. And, you know, 95.7 was great. And they were like, hey, you, you, you go take care of it. We'll take care of it. So I go down, and I'm going to see this cardiologist. I'm freaking out. Am I going to have a heart attack? Am I going to have a stroke? So I check in. I'm going to miss the post-game show. And nurse, you know, height, weight, and does all that kind of stuff. Checks my vitals. And they put me in this room. I'm not even looking at my watch. I have no idea what time it is. All of a sudden, the door opens up. And the cardiologist comes in. My phone rings. Who do you think it is? Ray Fossey. It's Ray Fossey. Left a message going, Townie, 
Where are you? Is everything all right? Are you okay? How's your family? You think anybody else called me? Ray was worried that I wasn't on the postgame show because he knew I would never miss a postgame show. I'll never forget that. I mean, what he did for me and how he treated me and how he treated so many different people. I mean, Cody, he loves you too, man. You're right. I mean, I knew that from day one. I mean, when I first started, to, when I joined the organization and building a relationship with him, and he would randomly call me during the week, and he'd be like, hey, so are we still on for, for Wednesday at, you know, 3.30 or whenever we would do our interviews? Are we going to be on the field? And we'd talk, and then he'd ask me how I'm doing, and then we I'd look at the watch, and I'm like, I've been on the phone for an hour, and we literally are talking about literally everything from baseball to what's going on in life and, you know, planning my wedding and all this stuff, so... It, I built that relation with him, and, you know, it, it was really, you know, it hit me on, on Wednesday. You know, I didn't know Ray. I've known Ray for a long time now. Um, it was different, like, whenever the passing of Dick Callahan. I didn't know Dick as well as I've known Ray. So this one was a little different for me because the relationship I built with him. And I know how many people, he, as you mentioned, he is the most genuine person. So the, the way Ray Fossey was when you saw him, that's who he was. He, There was no fluff. There was no BS. I mean, he told you how he felt, and he, that's why I always respected him. That's that was Ray Fossey. His storytellings, the way he could tell a story, that's why I love talking to him. Because his story tell the stories he told from the stories of Reno to playing in Cleveland to the Don Sutton story. Which Reno we'll stories to, were good. <laughs> the the Don Sutton story, which we'll get to later. Like there's so many good ones we have. And I'm not gonna lie to you, when you said that the cardiologist walked in, I'm not gonna lie, I thought you were gonna say Ray Fossey walked in as the cardiologist. No, I mean my, I'm looking at my <laughs> phone going, oh my God. How about when I was in San Diego, my, my, all of a sudden my mother's breast cancer came back. My mom's going to die. And so, uh, something I'll always thank the A's for the real, they really helped me out. A lot of you may not know, but I basically did, I did the show and A's, A's pre and post game for probably two and a half months in San Diego. No one knew. And the A's are actually, when I'm flying down there, the A's are actually playing the, Padres at Petco Park. It's just the way that, you know, schedule works and the gods work. And so I'm rolling into Petco Park. No one knows except Kim, Kim Priest, our old VP, which I'll always be indebted to him for this also. So I've got I've got three things of luggage. They told me, don't worry about equipment, but I had to bring my equipment so I could do it, to, and it worked out that that my buddy was uh, one of the producers at a sports radio station. They were gonna. I brought them a boatload of chicken pies from the restaurant, so they set me up a studio. And I, I, I literally lived in San Diego for two and a half months doing A's baseball and and uh, helping with my mom. And so I show up to the ballpark. Nobody knows I'm gonna be there. Nobody knows it. So I get up to the press box. I put my stuff down. Um, I went down to the field real quick to say hi to Melvin. He was shocked. Like, what are you doing here? And then I, I went back up into the press box and I'm in this non-disclosed room. There's no like, you know, like, like when we're at the Coliseum, it says A's cast. All right. Or it's, it'll say home, home road, home TV, road TV. Like the, everybody, every room has a sign on it to let you know who's there. My room has nothing. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And I'm looking out on the field and poof, the door opens up. Who do you think it is? 
Well, as soon as you said poof, the door, because I know how that door slams open. I know it's, yep. gonna, I know it's Ray. <laughs> Townie, what are you doing here? And I'm crying at this point. And we talked. I mean, how do you find me? I still don't know how he found me because I'm not on any list. I'm not on anything. No one's really seen me. How did Ray know I was there? And Ray told me then that he had had prostate cancer. As he was trying to help me get through my stuff, he talked about his story. And I don't know exactly what kind of cancer Ray died of. I know that he was okay, uh, UCSF, and he went through the story about how he was very lucky that it didn't get out of his prostate. The doctor told him that, and they caught it just in time. And he told me that I'm the only person that knows. He never told anybody that he went through prostate. It's, it, that's what he told me in San Diego way back when, that he never told anybody that he had prostate cancer. That's how private of a man he is. So here's a guy, like most people know him. I mean, my, bro, my brother had his prostate out recently. Uh, actually, when we were in San Diego for the winter meetings, I mean, I can't imagine um, having prostate cancer, beating it, and no one around you knows. But it's just stories like that of who Ray was and what he meant to so many of us and how caring and loving he was. He was, he was a very spiritual man. He was a very private and strong man. He was a great family man. I mean, the way he took care of his kids and his grandkids and his wife. I mean, he's, he's a model of what, what we should all want to strive to be. And he gave me that gift, you know, because I never got to know my grandfather. And he gave me that gift of what it was like. Because I know I've talked about it, but if you don't, my, my grandfather, you know, played many, many years in Major League Baseball, was the first MVP, first third baseman, ever be MVP, seven-time All-Star. But he died before I was born. Ray gave me that gift to know that. So I, whenever I had my kids in the booth, I would have Ray come down to say hello to my kids. And Ray would sit there and talk to my kids, and I'd always say, that man right there is just what your great-grandfather was. To give my kids an idea, if he would, my grandfather would live long enough, that that's what it would have been like. That's what Ray Fossey was. He filled a void for me, and I wish my brother would have had it too, and my cousin, because they never got to have that. Ray filled this void to me was far more than just our relationship doing interviews, if that makes sense. No, completely. And I knew, I mean, I knew how much you appreciated every time he'd bring up your grandfather, Bob Elliott, every time uh, we would talk. Because, you know, the 30-minute interviews meant, when we had him on for the 30 minutes, it meant a lot to me because I got to learn about the old school styles of baseball, because obviously everyone knows I'm a new school type of baseball guy. So when Ray would come on and talk about batting average and all that stuff that I don't really care about, and him and I would talk about it on air and off the air, you know, it's, it's, it was insightful. And for him, the, I knew the relationship that you guys had and what he was able to do for you off the air and for your career and for my career and for so many people's career. A lot of people don't know that, that how much Ray cares about people and how much he cared about people because that's something that he always did. He put everyone first for him before himself, and that's something I will always respect and love about him. And, you know, he gave me the bo – I remember we were talking about his bobblehead that's in the Bobblehead Hall of Fame or the Bobblehead Museum down in Miami, and 
I said, I, and I said, I don't have this bobblehead faucet you that you that everyone talks about you have. And he goes, Oh, I got one for you. And I remember the next time I saw him, he brings the bobblehead to me. He signs the box for me to Cody, the best in the biz. And he and I have the bobblehead sitting right here on my mantle. It, it's I have him, Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, and Albert Pujols' three thousandth career hit with the Angels. Yes, it's a very eclectic group of bobbleheads, but those are my baseball bobbleheads up there. And when Ray gave that to me, it, me, it means a lot to me. And I kept the box too; it's in my closet. Like that's just something he did. And when he gave that to me, and just all the stories he would tell, like that's something I'm gonna remember forever. Joey, our co- Joey Libertori, our coworker, told me one time that Ray would randomly call him and say. Hey, Joey, it's raining at my house. Is it raining at your parents' house? Because his parents live in Arizona as well. Like, it's stuff like that. Like, it just makes you laugh when, like, Ray calls. Like, hey, I just want to say, uh, it's raining where I'm at. I wonder if it's raining at your parents' house. Hope you're doing well. Talk to you soon. Like, it's just small stuff like that that Ray would do that, you know, that it's, it's those, those are invaluable conversations that, you know, you'll never get to replicate. That's a great point right there. He was never, he was never not a part of, people's lives with small stuff didn't have to be big stuff you know some people want to do big stuff because they want to make you know they want to make the big big show ray was about giving people a phone call calling you telling you're doing a great job the little stuff and yes it was i was down in i was down in miami with the raiders and i took a bunch of people over to go to the marlins game it was the final game it was the final it was the fight it was, yeah, we were there on a Saturday. Sunday would have been the f- finale. And I'm walking around the stadium, and I and I see the Bobblehead Museum. And I remember taking that picture and sending it to Ray. I have no idea where the A's were at the time going, hey, look, you really are famous. You're in the Bobblehead Hall of Fame. <laughs> and, 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 and let me tell you, too, there's certain places, you know, like in Cleveland, when we got off the bus at Cleveland, our players got off, and there's a bunch, you know, there's always people there, right? If it's a decent time of the day. We got off the bus in Cleveland, no one even cared about our players. It was all like pictures of Fossey. <laughs> He's in his 70s, and everybody wanted his signature in Cleveland. He's a big deal in Cleveland. And, you know, one, one of the special things I ever did with Ray, I mean, I did a lot with Ray. But one of the special things was, Townie, let's go out to Heritage Park. I said, you you bet, I'm in, let's go. Ray and I walk out of the press box, go down the elevator, walk down the right field line, hang a left, and you're in right field, right center, and there is the Cleveland Indians, basically their Hall of Fame. It's called Heritage Park. And... There's a big statue of Bob Feller, and it's all the great Indians and their history. And Ray Fossey and I went down to his plaque and did probably like a 30-minute interview. And he was so proud to take me to his plaque. He he was, you know, and Dwayne Kuyper is right next to him, who they played together. And he was so proud of that plaque because, you know, not only is he one of the great A's, he's truly one of the great Indians of all time. And... It was funny being with him in Cleveland. I mean, everywhere we went, I mean, with the uh, you're in the press box and everybody's coming to say hello to him. I mean, because he's one of the great Indians. He is. And he was very proud of that. He was very proud of his time, as he should have been. He was a terrific Cleveland Indian. 
And I'll never forget going to Heritage Park with him. And then he was showing me all the different, you know, Larry Doby and all these different people. And I, I mean, it was really cool. I mean, the Indians have celebrated their history the right way. And uh, going to Heritage Park with him, I know, made him very proud. If you want to, if you want to just put around, if you want to just put a value on how how respected Ray was around the sport of baseball, when the star player of your sport is tweeting about the passing of Ray Fossey, that shows you how respected he is. Mike Trout sent out a tweet when he found out that that uh, Ray passed away, and I'll pull up the the, the tweet from Mike Trout. Like there were so many people tweeting about Ray's passing, but when Mike Trout sent something. My thoughts and prayers are with the Fossey family in the eighth tonight. His love and passion for the game will be missed across baseball. Rest in peace, Ray Fossey. When the best player in baseball is tweeting about you, you know that he was respected and, and loved around the sport of baseball. And that just shows you how much everyone loved talking to Ray Fossey around the game. I mean, Johnny Bench. There was, I mean, everyone around the, the game. Our players, Chris Bassett. Um, there was so many different people tweeting about Ray Fossey. It just shows you how much they enjoyed conversation. I mean, there's Tyler Leidendorf, who was barely with the A's, was tweeting about what his what he was what Ray Fossey meant to him. So it just shows you what Ray the the impact Ray had on so many different people's lives, from players to media to fans. So many of our fans tweeting about Ray. Just his impact will live on forever with so many people. Yeah, and I and I I don't know how we're we're gonna honor him, but I know we're gonna do it and uh, and we're gonna do it in the right way because. He's truly one of the great A's of all time. And, and, you know, when we bring people out to the treehouse, there's only one time out of the treehouse there was this mass, as we're doing the pregame show, this mass group. Remember when they would bring Ray and Glenn out to right field and they did that broadcast out there? Yes, I do, yeah. I don't know. Was anybody else with them? I don't remember. That was a, that was a while ago. There was this massive crowd around us because Ray Fossey was there. He was a star. And it just wasn't a gold glove. It was a Rawlings gold glove. And you think when you win two World Series, you go to the All-Star game, you win the gold gloves, and then you have that kind of career as a broadcaster. You think how many years... Think of Ray Fossey, Bill King, and Lon Simmons all together. Just take a moment to think about that. How lucky as A's fans you were to have Bill King, Lon Simmons, and Ray Fossey all on the same broadcast. That's greatness. It's absolute greatness. And it's not, you, you don't realize how bad you're going to miss something until you don't have it. And I think there is going to be a, a major, major void for so many of us going into next season. Are we calling Vinny here? Yeah, I'm going to call him right now. And I think that's kind of been, and I mean, if we would have had to do this show yesterday, I would have been a train wreck heading to Gilbert, Arizona. Vinny, how are you, buddy? How you doing, Tony? Well, you know, I said, you know, I just said it before you came on. If we had to do this show yesterday, I don't, I don't think any of us could have done it. We've now had a day, basically, degree. But uh, you know, I, I know how much you loved Ray and how much Ray loved you, and just I, when you got the news, it, it just had to be devastating. Yeah, it's not any easier today either, Tony. To be honest with you, I mean, just you know, trying to 
process the whole, you know, thing is it's really, really difficult. You know, when, when I got the call a couple of, you know, a couple of uh, days ago, late in the afternoon with the news is just, you know, it was, it was just beyond gut wrenching and just didn't, didn't see that coming. You know, both Ken and I had talked about it, uh, both privately off air and, and a little bit on air, you know, in the, in the final two months, minus Ray, is that, you know, we're, you know, we're hopeful. We're expecting that he's going to walk through the door. You know, he's, you know, either he's going to come back on the air and not so much like he never left because he was, you know, as we found out after the fact, he was dealing with circumstances. We had absolutely no idea the depth of what he was dealing with. And, um, you know, maybe, okay, the season's over and we didn't get a chance to see Ray. Well, we'll see him in spring training or he's going to, you know, make some announcement to, to the, to the regard of, look, uh, because of my health, I'm not able to continue as a broadcaster, but I'm forever an open A. And we, you know, we had a lunch with him or something, but seen him briefly at the ballpark or somewhere here in Arizona. And it's all gone. I mean, it's just, it, I just, you know, I, I was on MLB radio the day after in the morning with CJ Nitzkowski and Danny Wuxman. I couldn't keep it together. I'm not so sure I'll be able to keep it together with you because it's still, you know, it's just so raw and just, it's it, it it just means so much to this community you know not only to the A's community to you know to our small broadcast community myself and you and Ken and Cody and you know Dallas and of course Glenn who had him you know on a daily basis for 18 years on television uh you know and then our A's community of fans which are second to none and just seeing the outpouring the thing that that strikes me here recently Tony looking at a lot of the comments and a lot of the responses on social media about Ray is that here's a, a 74 year old man who spent three years playing for the club, right? And certainly great years because they won two world series and, you know, went back to the playoffs in 75 as well. But uh, the people that he touched, the, the age, you know, the age, ages of people that he touched from the very youngest, the people, you know, his age and beyond all points in between, and just having nothing but, you know, love and, you know, respect and certainly, uh, you know, prayers for, you know, for Carol and, and the girls and, and the grandkids. But uh, just just amazing, you know, the, the giant hole that we have in our organization right now. And it's just not going to be – it's not easy now. It's not going to be easy in spring training. It's not going to be easy that first game. It's not going to be easy on opening day. And you know this. We've talked about it on the air, Tony. I mean, I've, I've done this for – you know, decades where on opening day, I, I give a toast to my dad, you know, uh, with a, with a, let's say a, a, a social beverage. Uh, and th- it's going to be a bigger cup this year. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I just, it's just going to be tough. It's tough now. It's, it's good. It's going to take a long time for it to, to, to continue the healing process. You know, what you try and explain to fans, you know, fans love players and we get it. The players are the product on the field. That's what you come to see. And you love, you know, coming out and seeing so-and-so and certain guys. And But players, like for us, players come and go. So we're, we're kind of numb to it, especially when I get phone calls. We're like, oh, you got to keep this guy forever. You're like, no, you don't. Um, but broadcasters, you think about, you know, when Bill King passed, what that meant to this family. Um, and now with Ray Fossey, I think even when we lost our good friend, Dick Callahan, you know what, Dick, you know, showing up at the ballpark and hearing Dick's voice every single day, you know, 
that that's the thing about broadcasters. Broadcasters stay around for your entire life versus players. It's a different deal. Well, and and all three of those men, it's certainly I'm, you know, with, with Bill, you know, I, I'm the one that that fought. I, I I was the next person up. You know, Bill passed away in October of '05, and and I was offered to, you know, an opportunity to broadcast for the A's, you know, beginning in '06, and the the first things out of my mouth in spring training of 06 uh, was, you know, a soliloquy to Bill, who I'd known from the other side of the glass with my years with the Rangers, and basically uh, said to the fans, and it applies now, it applied to Dick, and it applies to Ray as well, is that you did not get a chance to say goodbye. You did not get a chance, you know, to to, to show your appreciation for for that person's meaning to you in your life in that very small segment of those three hours on a, you know, on a daily and a nightly basis and yearly basis and how you were, you were their template for, you know, spring, summer, and fall. And, you know, I, I, I basically apologized to the fans that day for, for having been, you know, for not being Bill's voice. You know, then I said it then and I say it today. I mean, I'm, you know, there's only one Bill King and, you know, it, it, it's so difficult for A's fans to, to, to try to take a step forward minus bill. And it, you know, it, it has taken time and, and it's, it's still hard for many people in the community. And, you know, when Dick passed away unexpectedly before, you know, opening day of, you know, of, of 2020, all of us, myself, yourself, uh, you know, Ken, not only did we love and respect Dick for who he was, you know, as a broadcast, you know, as a, his, stuff behind the microphone with all the different organizations in the Bay Area, but the person that he was and the mentor that he was to all of us and the, and the opportunities we all had to have private lunches and dinners with Dick and just have, you know, deep conversations about life. And, and you know, I told my wife today, you know, just missing him so much because I just missed those, those dinners where you just had a chance just to talk about a lot of things, about where you are in your life, how are your kids, how's your family. And here's some of his stories growing up in Pennsylvania and all that kind of stuff. And then with Ray, you know, multiply that even further because he was a player. He was, you know, he was a part of the, you know, the immortals, you know, the, the, the back-to-back-to-back world champions. They are the immortals. There's no, there's no turning back from that. And every time that the A's had had a celebration for those, for those teams, whether it was a 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, 40-year anniversary of that, of that time, you know, Bob Melvin has always – while he's been with the manager for the athletics, he always made it a point to try to remind his players, look, you got to come out here and show your respect because this is who you want to be. This is what you, this is what you're striving for. You want to be forever remembered, uh, etched in the memory of the, of the fan base here for what you accomplished on the field, what that, what that meant to them as players, what it meant to you as a fan. And, you know, with Ray doing this for you know nearly four decades, and, and, you know, doing it in, in, in a one-of-a-kind Ray way, uh, it's, it's as painful as anything that's ever happened. I mean, you've, we've, we've all lost a family member, and nobody wants to go through that. And yet we all have to deal with it on, on our own levels and try to find a way to, you know, to take that, that next step and, and then the step after that and always keeping uh, those people that are so close to you, the three that I just mentioned, keeping them, you know, close to your heart and, and understanding what, how fortunate we all are to do what we do. And I think about work ethic 
And that was something that I, I always joked with him and his scorebook. And but there's so many guys who played who they just they show up, they get the check. Hey, I was a superstar. I'm going to give you some opinion and then I'm going to go home. That's not who Ray Fossey was till his very last breath. His work ethic was as good or probably better than anybody. The way he prepared, the way he studied, the way he knew the players, the way he went into the, the, the clubhouse and he talked to everybody on a daily basis. And just, I mean, he had three different colored pencil, uh, pens going. I mean, Ray, Fo- Ray Fossey loved it, lived it, and every day he came to play. Well, I, I tell you, you know, among the many things that will be difficult, you know, walking into that press box in 2022, and I did it right at the, you know, right at the very end of the of the 2021 season. As we all know, that on on the press level, there's a there's like a storage room for the PR people, where it has all the old media guides and you know various and sundry other boxes of things and you know some old uh, giveaway items, things of that nature. That was Ray's like private area. He would come in and he would go sit in there. And that's where he would do a lot of his work and you know, a lot of his preparation before he went on the air. And I could, I, I know they're there because I saw them, you know, less than a month ago. That I, you know, you look in this room, you know, this, basically this broom closet, and there are three ring binders of, that belong to Ray of the different teams and the year by year information that he cataloged on a daily basis. And look, I I pride myself on on doing a lot of bookwork. It's it's necessary because I'm a person that never played the game, a person that respects the game, I'm a person that continues to learn about the game, and I keep these you know these Linus blanket notes in front of me that, depending on the game and depending on the circumstance, I will reference those as as Ray does the same thing. But Ray played in the big leagues, you know, for ten years. Ray played in the World Series. Uh, you know, he he, like you said, he. He could have just been Ray Fossey and to a certain extent would have had success doing that. That's not who Ray ever was in anything that he did. And, you know, we, we joke back and forth at times about, you know, the, the, the amount of, of note taking that we both did and, and, and brought to our, you know, our, our, you know, our seat every night in, in the press box to try to do the best possible job we can, you know, for A's fans and, um, among the many things that have struck me the past couple of days, Townie, is sure it's it was very moving that even somebody like Mike Trout, you know, took time to to post something on social media offering condolences, you know, to Ray's family and how he'll be missed. But the one that struck me the most was a picture of Ray interviewing Tyler Ladendorf. Tyler Ladendorf played ten minutes for the A's. And there's a picture of Ray interviewing Tyler. Tyler posted on social media, you know, what it, you know, what a privilege it was to, you know, to, to meet Ray and talk with Ray and, you know, do a pregame show with him. And, he, you know, he finally got back to the big leagues this year with the, with the Cubs after like, who knows, what, four years away from the big leagues. And who knows what other trials and tribulations he was going through. But that's who Ray was. Because when I was asked about this on MLB radio a couple of days ago, Townie, they said, all right, what would you tell an aspiring broadcaster? about Ray, about Ray Fossey and about the way that he went about his business. And like you just mentioned, he was always in the clubhouse. He was always talking to players. He was on the field. He was talking to players and coaches and managers. And yet that, those interviews that he did, and you know, he, there's a catalog of literally thousands of these Ray Fossey pregame shows, which he did for decades. But it was, 
in many respects, not only about, hey, how did you hit the home run last night? Or how did you throw that shutout? Or how did you get the save in last night's game? How's your family? You know, tell me about your parents. How's your, how's your young son or daughter doing? Those are other parts of who Ray Fossey represented. He wanted to know about the person. He wanted more than just that, you know, that label of a baseball player. He wanted to bring those stories out uh, for the fans. And that's, that's the, that's the joy that we have because the fans, you know, 99.9% of them, Chris, don't get a chance to do what we do. They don't, they don't get a chance to walk into a clubhouse. They don't get a chance to walk onto the field during batting practice. They can't engage different uh, members of the organization in either interviews or even small talk, which is much more valuable than the three minute or five minute or six minute interview that you do, because you get, you get so much more information that you can bring to bear for the fan that listened to the game last night and said, is thinking, why did A, B or C happen? And they're, they're trusting that, that we're the ones that are going to find that answer and bring that to them the next day. That's part of what brings them back, you know, day in and day out. And, you know, Ray did that as well as, as anybody. Plus, Look, I've I've done this for three decades. I do have a collection of ex-players that I had or ex-coaches or managers I had in the minor leagues that have gone on to the big leagues and have done different things in various organizations that I have a connection with. I have a connection with with scouts and things of that nature. But it has taken so much time for me just to walk up behind a a batting cage and engage in conversation with Aaron Boone or you know Mike Sosha when he was around or Joe Madden. Ray Fossey is on the field and it automatically happens. Ray Fossey can walk up to Yadier Molina, having never seen him, having never met him, shake his hand. And there's that immediate bond. That's because they're former, you know, they're ex catchers of the catcher fraternity, which we always joked about with Ray, but because he's Ray Fossey, he could walk behind the cage and he could shake Joe Girardi's hand, having never seen him before. And immediately, you know, the conversation begins and it's great baseball talk that Ray would bring on the air. He would, because of who he was, but he didn't just take that for granted because that was just part of what he did. Like you mentioned, the behind the scenes stuff that people never saw about how Ray took so much pride in his job, you know, and he, you know, and, and what he wanted to do on a daily basis on the air. They didn't see that. I did. And I got a chance to see the way he interacted on the field and in the clubhouse. And that's what made him so special. No doubt about it. Vinny, be well, be safe. And I'm sure we're going to be seeing each other soon. Yeah, fingers crossed, Connie. And again, you know, prayers to Carol and to, to, to Lindsay and Nikki and the grandkids. I mean, the other thing, Ray Fossey loved being Ray Fossey. You know, he, he got it. And when he would have interactions like you and I and, you know, Ken and, and Glenn, when we would do the rope lines for season ticket holders and stuff, it was such a big deal to the fan. Ray knew that. You know, Ray understood that those 10 seconds with that fan meant everything. And he wanted to make sure that 10 seconds or that one minute or in the booth, if somebody got a chance to come up and visit the booth before or during the game, that that interaction was going to be memorable. He made sure that he made them feel welcome, made sure that he was glad they were there. And that's just, again, another small part of, of who Ray Fossey was. I mean, I, it's, it's still staggering to think that we're talking about it in these terms. But uh, I appreciate you, uh, you know, doing this, Tony. Appreciate you know, this vehicle there for us to – to, to use this small part to, to grieve a little bit further for, for Ray and for Carol and for the kids. Take care. Thank you, Tony. Vince Catronio. All right. Something that we're going to do today that for you, the fans, we want to hear Ray's voice. 
we came up with this idea on A's Cast Live. Not that, you know, that we could use for A's Cast. That why don't we take Ray, who's a legend, and take another legend where I would lead in and just let these two guys go. You don't need you don't need to hear really hear from me. There's very little of me. It was like, Ray, what do you think? And he said, I absolutely, Townie, I love the idea. So we basically got two legends together. I mean, you can't get this anywhere else in baseball, the stuff that we've been doing. And Ray was such a big part of it. Here is our conversation because very topical because Dusty Baker is managing in the ALCS. Here is Ray and Dusty. Well, we've loved doing this where we get Ray Fossey with a baseball legend, Chris Townsend here on A's cast. And of course, everybody here in the Bay Area knows Dusty Baker, who's had one of the great baseball careers of all time as a player, as a manager. Now, of course, the manager of the Houston Astros. Dusty, it's great to see. It's great to hear from you. Well, hey, it's great to be here. And uh, man, you know, I love coming back home. You know, I still got a place in San Bruno and all my family's in Sacramento. And um, it's great coming back here. I get to see my son. You know, I went to one of his games the other night at Stanford. They lost the next inning the same way that we lost comeback victory. And uh, my son goes, hey, Dad, you guys lost the same way we lost. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know that. And, uh, you know, I get to see my grandson and daughter who's coming to the game today. Uh, you know, they live in the uh, Oakland Hills and so Montclair area. So it's it's great coming back here. And, Great coming back to the stadium and, you know, brings back a lot of memories, you know, throughout my career. I do know, Dusty, that I remember going down to see you when you would come in to manage and you'd have your entourage in from up in the Sacramento area. And I know that's can't you can't do that. But, you know, you, you mentioned your son, Darren, and I, yeah. I want to start with that because you have to be a proud papa to be able to know that you got somebody following your footsteps. What is it like to have somebody and maybe compare what you did signing out of high school versus Darren, who's going to Cal and playing college baseball. What kind of comparison to maybe talk about how you look at him in the future of being a star like you were? Well, you know, I was hoping that he didn't sign out of high school, you know, because my situation where my parents got divorced, I was supposed to go to Santa Clara economic spokes of the wheel were off. And so, you know, I signed out of necessity. Um, uh, but baseball was probably my third best sport, third best love. With but difference is my son, that was his first love. And, and he chose baseball like after his sophomore year. He was playing football and basketball. And he, the day, he said, Dad, I want to be a baseball player. But when the draft came up, uh, you know, I wanted him to get drafted, you know, for his, for his sake and his confidence, his ego. But I didn't want him to get drafted too high because I didn't want him tempted not to you know not to go to college you know what I mean yeah. but I couldn't say that to anybody or any uh, or the scouts or anything and you know like I had a, a daughter that graduated from from college and now I have two kids that graduated from college you know Darren graduated last week but it That's wasn't right. a real graduation it was a virtual graduation but I'm you know I'm proud of what he's accomplished and you know he's gotten a few awards at Cal, he's up for a top 10 award out of 250 kids for commitment, uh, competitiveness, grades, and, and he got another award the other day. So, uh, you know, he's on his way. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm very proud of him as a, as, a, as, a, as a person more than I am a ball player. That, that is great. And, and Dusty, 
you've had a tremendous career as a player and now as a manager. I want to go back to a special time in Atlanta when you had the privilege of playing. Matter of fact, you managed a home run hitter and you played with the all-time greatest as far as I'm concerned in yep. Henry Hank Aaron. What, what was that like, first of all, playing with Hank Aaron and, and especially being in the on-deck circle when he hit number 715? Well, you know, it was like, uh, you know, I was hanging around my uncle that was a great ball player. And, uh, you know, he would teach me about ball playing naturally, but he would teach me more even about life. And he promised my mother when I signed with the Braves uh, that he would take care of me uh, as if I was his son. And, uh, and he promised my mom that he'd make me go to church and, and you know, not hang out at night, do all the stuff that young guys like to do or don't like to do. And, I, and, then, and then he told me something one time and I said something kind of smart back to him. And he goes, you know, I said, hey man, you're not my daddy. And next thing I know, he had his hand behind my neck and, uh, and I couldn't move. And he's like, what'd you say? I said, nothing. And he goes, that's what I thought. And he goes, I said, you better take your hand off my neck. He says, then what? I said, I'll think of something. This is all I could come up with. But, you know, like he was a, you know, like he was a disciplinarian. He believes that love is discipline. And, uh, you know, I sure miss him. And, and it was great yeah. being on, on deck circle. And I was glad for him that it was over, you know, yeah. because like it, it was a high pressure situation. There was a lot of racial tension at that time. And, you know, he was the brunt of a lot of it. And, uh, you know, he wasn't very happy. You know, he was yeah. getting divorced at the same time. So Ralph Barr and myself were in charge of kind of making him laugh and, you know, making him happy. And you and Ralph Barr can make anybody laugh. And happy. <laughs> so that's for sure. Yeah, you, you know, uh, watching him, and I had actually privileged, uh, the Braves came through Tucson, and I saw those quick wrists that he had when he had home runs. He, he wasn't as bucked up, it seemed, Dusty, mm -hmm. as some of the players get all bucked up. He, he was more just kind of a wrist forearm hitter. How would right. you compare with him and then managing San Francisco with Barry Bonds, who basically was the home run hitter as well? How would you right. compare their styles of hitting? Well, they were different. Uh, um, but the but the one common denominator is that they had tremendous vision. Yeah. I mean, they could see uh, like, like nobody's business. They could see what a pitcher was doing if he was throwing them a fastball, a curveball, a changeup, and they, they, they had, you know, tremendous vision. Barry would like, a guy would ask Barry, what do you see? And Barry would tell him and Barry would get frustrated. He's like, man, you don't see it. I mean, it was like every day in common for him. And the thing about Hank, what people uh, uh, don't realize is that in the wintertime, this guy played handball and racquetball all the time. And I think that that really, really helped uh, you know, his hand-eye hand, hand -eye coordination and his balance because he had tremendous balance. And uh, he told me that, you know, he got his wrist here. See, back back in the day, everybody did manual labor, especially yeah. if you're from the South. And, you know, he worked on an ice truck. And you tell people about an ice truck, they don't know what you're talking about. You know, I barely know, you know, the ice truck. You know what an ice truck is? I you know, do, they yeah, come around yeah, and they, right, yeah, right. they come around and deliver ice, right? And, right? and you got those tongs and you got to put that in the bottom <laughs> of the refrigerator or like, you know, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle bale hay, uh, other guys pick cotton or whatever it is. You got the uh, uh, eternal uh, strength, you know, versus mm -hmm. weights can, can give you temporary strength. As soon as you stop lifting weights, then you're going to lose that, 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 that strength and bulk. But these guys, I mean, they did tremendous, uh, 
uh, working the off season and growing up as a kid. You know, Dusty, you were a, a great hitter. We'll talk about your managerial career in, in a second, but I want to ask you about being the hitter that you were and watching Hank Aaron. I've always yeah. thought that home runs are hit on mistake pitches. Hank Aaron mm-hmm. was more than just a home run hitter. How much right. did you see, not only in your, yourself, but but Hank Aaron as well, that it was a mistake that was made by a pitcher that resulted in a home run? Otherwise, you see a guy in second base in scoring position, you're going to drive him in with a base hit. Right. Well, well sometimes there are mistakes. I mean, sometimes he would tell me, guys, going to throw me this and that. He's going to throw me a fastball in. He's going to throw me a slider away, and I'm going to sit on it, boom, boom, boom. Or he'll tell me, like, uh, you'll watch the shortstop right before. And he'd always ask me, do you understand? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I understood all the time. <laughs> but half the time, I didn't understand until, like, five years later, I remember him telling me, uh, uh, he says, man, watch the shortstop because the shortstop moves in the hole right before the pitch, and it's going to be a breaking ball. Huh. And then all of a sudden, one day, I saw Ozzie Smith moving a hole over there. That's five years later. And he used to always tell me, look, I know you don't understand. I always say I understood it. I, but he says the, the key is to retain what I'm telling you. You know what I mean? You might not understand it, but you retain it and someday you might. And, uh, you know, all, all home runs aren't, aren't necessarily mistakes. I saw Hank in spring training when he was going for the record. He was working on hitting home runs. I mean, I think he had like, like 10, 10, 10 hits the whole spring and nine of them were homers. And uh, wow. I swear, but he was working on hitting homers. Yeah. And uh, man, I mean, this guy, the, the focus and the concentration was unbelievable, which is very similar to Barry Bonds. You know, I mean, it, and it's hard to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, if you think you're going to frustrate him, like that, that's what Barry was the best at. I mean, he'd get one pitch a night and, and be ready for it. You know, a lot, a lot of yeah. times the pitchers would think that they're going to put you to sleep and I got him set up. And then, boom, they always got you set up. So, you know, they're very, you know, it's great similarities, uh, you know, to both of them. Uh, but they're both both outstanding hitters. Outstanding hitter, outstanding player yourself. What was it like for you, Dusty, when you went to Los Angeles and played for the Dodgers? Well, it was like a dream come true to me because I was ready to get out of the South because I'm, <laughs> I'm from the coast. Yeah. And then Hank had left. And we were there by ourselves. You know, Daryl Evans, myself, Ralph Gar, uh, uh, Marty Perez, and they end up trading all of us at the same time. And I went to L.A. and uh, Tommy Davis, the reason I wore number 12 was because Tommy Davis was my hero. I was yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, that was like a dream come true. And I fell on my face. I hurt my leg playing basketball that winter. And I hit at home. I mean, everybody was upset because it was like a, a, a five or two trade with uh, or four for two with me and Ed Goodson, I was a, the main focus of the trade and you know, people were upset. And uh, I hit a home run, my first at bat. And I was like, <laughs> hey man, I'm great. I had to hit another home run till July the 4th. <laughs> <laughs> and they were, booing, they were booing me and they, they were like, oh, cussing me out. And I was like, and then I discovered, well, they discovered finally that, you know, I had a bad uh, knee, so I got to operate on next year. You know, hit 30 home runs, and yeah. then from then on, then you made the all Dodger team. But it just shows you how how some things can change. Uh, you know, we, you know, I play with some great players. I mean, you know what it's like to play with great players. I mean, yeah. when you go to the park every day, you know you got a great chance to win. That's and it. when you and when you lose, you're you're shocked. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so you know, and then we had a manager, Thomas Sorter, that was 
that was the consummate uh, positive thinker. You know what I mean? We used to have to tell him, be quiet, because, man, you're, you're over-positing us. You know what I mean? There is <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah, we had a great time, and I, and I had great teammates. And like I said, there's nothing better nothing better than winning. How did you get into managing? I mean, what, what prompted you to, to get into managing? You, like I said, had a great career as a player, and you turned it into a, a great career as a manager as you continue to manage now with Houston Astros. But how did it all start for you? Well, it all started for me much like my baseball career started out of high school. Uh, you know, uh, my parents got divorced, and I got divorced right after my playing career. And I, I was at a crossroads. I, I became a stockbroker. And 87, stock market crash, which a lot of people blame me for it probably. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, um, um, you know, Al, Al Campana said some things, you know, derogatory uh, statements, you know, about, about, about uh, race and black people. And so um, uh, baseball came looking for some guys. And I was in the right spot at the right time myself, Cito Gaston, <clears throat> uh, Don Baylor, and, uh, and Hal McRae. And mm -hmm. so, uh, um, you know, they called me um, and I had no idea that the same guy that was responsible for me signing with the Braves, the reason why they gave me the money was, was Bob Kennedy. And mm -hmm. I didn't even know that he was at the Braves at the time. Bob Kennedy recommended me to Al Rosen, who I didn't know. And I didn't know all this was transpiring. And so Al Rosen uh, called me and he says, hey, man, we, we'd like you, you to be an organization. I said, hey, I, I don't, I don't want to coach. You know, I got skinny legs and I don't wear a whistle and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I don't look like a coach. You know what I mean? And so so uh, they, um, I went to Lake Arrowhead to, to pray with me and my brother and our, and our daughters. And my dad told me to go up to the mountains and ask the Lord what to do. I went up there and I'm checking into Marriott and somebody taps me on the shoulder and it's Bob Lurie, the owner of the Giants. Hmm. Wow. And, and so I said, what are you doing here? He goes, hey, I'm here my first time. I said, me too. So he goes, hey, man, you need to come join us. And uh, I come to the phone, call my dad. I said, hey, my dad, what do you think? Is that a sign? He says, boy, if you don't, if that's not a sign, you just don't want to see it. Because that's not the sign that I was looking for, right? Yeah. And so, I guess, so that's, that's what made up my mind to go into coaching. I gave myself five years to be, to be the manager or, or go do something else. Uh, someplace because I give orders from better than I take them. You know, yeah. probably you do too. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. almost five years to the day, I got hired to be the uh, manager of the Giants. And Al Rosen, I remember him calling me in and, and explaining to me about the new ownership. He just told me, hey, he says, when you get in there for an interview, the job's yours. Just don't screw it up by trying to t by, by trying to show them how smart you are. That's what he told me. <laughs> Hey, hey, Dusty, th there's no doubt you're a Hall of Famer and, and you're going to go in the Hall of Fame. But how important was it for you to get this job managing the Houston Astros, especially with everything yeah. that was going on while you were out of baseball, but to get this job, take over a team that's very, very good? Well, I didn't think there was a chance. I mean, you know, usually Washington was a good team that I that I inherited. The rest of the teams were second division teams that you had to rebuild. Yeah. I mean, and, and this one, you don't have to rebuild. You just got to, you know, direct them and get out the way. And, uh, you know, these guys can play. I mean, they can really play. And, uh, you know, this was a blessing here, you know, to, to, to have another opportunity, which I thought was over. 
you know, to win the, uh, you know, to win the World Series, you know, again, and win the championship and also, uh, you know, closing in on 2,000 victories. I mean, so, you know, this was, uh, you know, this was sent from above. Hey, Dusty, we appreciate the time. Uh, thank you so much. Enjoy the family uh, while you're here for, for one more day. And hopefully we can talk to you later in the season. But it's just great to hear your voice. Great to see your smile. Be well and be safe. And good luck with the rest of the season. All and before right. you go, I just want yeah. to confirm the coolest manager in all of baseball <laughs> won Dusty Baker. And I had the privilege. We didn't talk about the two years in 85 and 86 that you were with the athletics. And I drove you around yes, to you these did. functions. To, that's yeah. right. And we, we had some great conversations. Oh, but had a great, the, great time, man. You made yeah. you made life pleasurable. Thank you, well, brother. Listen, you are the coolest man. See those, those sweat bands and that toothpick? You are the coolest. Best of luck to you, my friend. All right, I'll see you later. Take care, All right, Dusty. Dusty. All right, man. Dusty Baker with Ray Fossey. That's what we're doing today. We're honoring our friend, a man we loved. Ken Korak, the voice of the Oakland Athletics, will be here at 2.30. But Dusty's great, and so is our next one. Hawk Harrelson. One of the new members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, Ford C. Frick Award winner, who played with Ray. And I believe at one point, right, Cody, they they roomed together on the road or they lived together or something. I mean, these guys, <laughs> these guys, wait till you hear this one. I mean, because uh, uh, I think Hawk is the one that came up with the nickname Muley for the Marion Mule. I think he was the one that used to call him Muley. Yeah, this this was a good one. Uh, when when we asked Ray about this about doing with Hawk, I was like, "Hey, what do you think about doing with Hawk?" And he was like, "Oh, absolutely!" So I reached out to Hawk, and Hawk was like, "For Ray Fossey, I'll do anything." And, oh. and it was when we were like, I was just more excited to have Hawk on overall than when we could do with Hawk and Ray. I was like, "This is going to be gold," and it was. You can put it on the board. Yes, Ray Fossey and the new Hall of Famer Ken Hawk Harrelson. Hi, Tommy. What's up, Ray? Man, you are up and at them today. You know, you can't change all those things that you said. You know, I'm drinking tea instead of coffee. I'm up different time and haven't had breakfast. Come on, man. This is this is baseball time, you know? You, you can't be looking at things like that and think it's going to change. I'm, I'm sure Cody just did everything like normal, right? Cody just sits the same old and you know, get everything ready for an eight o'clock show and get ready to go, right? Yeah, I was up at five thirty like normal, and I had everything of going. Of course, I drank orange juice, not it, not not a mimosa, just orange juice, no champagne. Uh, yeah, well, then drink champagne after the A's clinch everything. You that, know, you can you can indulge that. You know, that's what I'm waiting for. Is this the Hawkmaster? Who's this? Hey, this is Ray Fossey, Hawk. How you doing, buddy? Hey, I couldn't get you. I- I guess the whole let me cut the TV down. I couldn't hear you. <laughs> it's a remote. Okay. It says volume down. It says volume down. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> let me tell you what. I hate this. They bought me uh, this TV, a new one for my birthday, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you you get to sit you get to sit in your recliner and watch all your That's programs. That's it. That's, That's it. And I got well. You're got on an hour. Ten minutes before I had my first uh, vodka and tonic. <laughs> uh, well, well, 
<laughs> well, Hawk, you're you're on A's cast. Chris Townsend, of course, is is here, and and Cody Lyons, who called you, the Commander Cody. Cody, very happy to have you on board today. Did you uh, did you watch the game yesterday? I'm sure you did between uh, your your White Sox and the A's. Yeah, I saw most of it. I saw most of it. I uh, it, it was Giolito. You know, if he's if he's spotting this fastball with that changeup he's come up with, he's he's devastating. I mean, he really is. Uh, you being a former All Star catcher, you know what I'm talking about. You know, the best pitch in baseball is a well-located fastball. It's not a curveball. It's not a slider. And uh, if he's fighting that fastball, and then he came up with that changeup last year, which brought him back in. Two years ago, he was voted the worst pitcher in Major League Baseball. Yeah. And last year, he was one of the best. But our club, I don't know if, if you guys know this stat or not. I'm sure you do. But our club this year, overall, I think, is 18-0 and 0 against left-handed starters. Well, it's it was fourteen and zero, now fifteen and zero. But you're exactly right. And then I'm Tim Anderson, about, you know, yeah, yeah. But Tim Anderson, when, Tim Anderson said when he found out Lazardo was pitching, he said thank you. And that was before the game. And Lazardo, Lazardo's good, Hawk, and he's going to be good. But you know, I want to ask you about. And you mentioned Giolito, as a great hitter that you were, a big home run hitter. When he throws the ball now, short arms it behind his right ear. How much do you think that affects hitters? How much is that something that you as a hitter could take notice and, and be able to recognize the pitch and, and be able to hit a pitch coming out of his hand the way it does now? No, I hated short armors. You know, it, uh, it short armors, they were about six inches quicker than they looked, you know, from the side. And uh, I remember the sixth game of the World Series, we were playing the Cardinals and uh, it's about the seventh or eighth inning, and they brought in this left-hander to pitch to Yastrzemski. So his name was Horner, Joe Horner, not yep. uh, Horner. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and so Yaz comes over to me. Yaz has never seen him. He says, "You know this guy?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "He's sneakier in hell." I said, "He's he's about six inches quicker than he looks." He said, "Well, I got no more than that." So we went over, and Sal Magley was the pitching coach who had the scouting report on the Cardinals that Frank Malzone had done. He said, "What you got on Horner?" He, Thumbs to it. He gets to it. He starts all left-handed hitters off with a low fastball to get a hit. He has looked at me, pointed his finger in my face, and said, that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> the First great call you low fastball, and he hit it about 15 rows over that bullpen out there in right center field. <laughs> wow. I'll never forget this. I'm sitting in the on-deck circle, and I'm saying, I'm talking to my my buddy Hawk. You know, he's a, he's my best friend. And I said, Hawk, that's, that's what it takes to be a hitter. We'll never get there. <laughs> yeah, no, you, 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 <laughs> but but you know, I, I think of Keith Folk, who was with your with your Sox, and right. with, with the A's and with the the Red Sox, he had that short. He was a former catcher. And he had that short arm delivery, but behind right. his ear, he had the greatest changeup. So when you talk about Giolito, how much the fastball that you can't see, but the changeup when he throws it like Keith Folk did, I mean, it was devastating yesterday. And, and then he throws his sure. breaking ball, which is even so. Then how much more difficult is it knowing that he's got the good fastball and now the changeup in that same velocity, That I mean, that same uh, slot? Well, you know you, you know yourself. And you, as I said, you were a hell of a good hitter, especially prior to getting that shoulder injured, you know, with the collision with Rose. But uh, you, 
can tell me a guy throws 100 miles an hour. I don't care. You can tell me he's got a right. great curveball. I don't care because if he gets it over, I'm not going to do anything with it anyway. And you can tell me he's got a great slider. I don't care because if he hits the spot with it, then, you know, I'm going to grab some bench. But you tell me he's got a change up. Now, I guess my wheel's turning. And you're exactly right. Boy, that, that change up that Keith had and also Giolio's come up with. And, you know, we got a great uh, pitching coach in Don Cooper. Yeah. Don gave a change up. And it was they had some really good camera work there yesterday, too, because you could see the tumble on that change up, you know, when it came yeah. out of his hand. And uh, you can't, you know, especially left-handed hitters, strong left-handed hitters. You know, that that is where their ass out. Yeah. You know, you know, Hawk, I, I mentioned yesterday on the radio, Don Cooper is an institution in Chicago. Like you said, he's a tremendous pitching coach. And in 2018, Giolito was struggling a little bit, and Coop went out and aired him out. He aired him out. And, and all of a sudden, I mean, Giolito's like a sponge, it sounds like. I don't know him, but it sounds like he's a sponge, and he'll take whatever is told him. But when Coop aired him out, of course, Coop said, no, nah, I was just trying to encourage him to do something. You know yourself, having seen Coop all these years, that he, if he airs somebody out, he's not being nice to him, right? No. Now, you know, one of my favorite things to do uh, to do was in spring training was go down and watch Cooper work with our, our good young pitching prospects. And yeah. and I'd stand there, I'd stand there because he'd be behind the screen talking to them, you know. And I'd, I'd be standing with Coop. And some of the things he would say, I'll tell you what, I just it just buckled my knees. I went right to the ground. Because he aired their ass out. I'm telling you, he would get on you. <laughs> and that's one reason, you know, he, he, Coop, that's one reason. You're right. He's an institution. Uh, you know, it's hard to say anybody's the best in baseball in anything. But I, he Coop's in that category of uh, you can tie him, but you can't beat him. Yeah. Hey, Hawk, today, Chris Bassett, former White Sox pitcher, pitches for the A's today. Now, watching Giolito before – he became that short arm pitcher. He had that big, long arm delivery like Bassett does now. But the thing that Bassett will do occasionally, kind of on his own, we were talking before you came on, even with nobody on base, if he feels his mechanics are off, he'll go to the stretch to kind of minimize the mechanics and maximize his effort. As a hitter, seeing that long arm delivery and the fact that he can drop his his, his uh, variation on his fastball from 93-94 to 68-69 with the curveball, but then also change his mechanics by going out of the stretch with nobody on. As a hitter yourself, what will that do to you? And what do you think, say, the White Sox today facing him will be able to, to try to do against him? Well, I hope he goes from the stretch. I'll tell you that right now because you as a hitter and, and me as a hitter, I love to face guys out of the stretch. Abreu, yeah. Abreu just he just munches up on guys. You know that's the reason he's got so many RBIs. He gets these guys from the stretch. And I used to I used to tell Reggie Smith, who was our center fielder and a great center fielder, and he had great speed. And I used to tell Reggie, if you you know, because I uh, Mike Andrews uh, hit first, Reggie hit second, yes, hit third, I hit fourth. And if Reggie got on, I'd tell him, don't go. I want to get this guy out of the stretch. And yeah. uh, and I, I, we got a guy out there today, though, that's got that changeup we were just talking yep. about. You know, You're right. Michael, he's You're right. I'll tell you what, he's a competitor, and he is 10 points. And if he's yeah. right, you guys are in for a tough day. Now, uh, I haven't seen, you know, 
about it that much, but I'll tell you one thing right now. He better be on the top of his game, especially if he's going to work out of the stretch. Well, he, he does go back and forth, but that's a good point that you make about that. But, you know, Hawk, I want to ask you, too, and you just mentioned a pretty good lineup, the, the Boston Red Sox, with Yaz hitting in front of you, you hitting fourth. You know, they've talked about Abreu uh, and how Jason Benetti talked about his mother, Abreu, said, you know, why aren't you working, playing every day? But he is surrounded, and all of a sudden the White Sox, one through nine, are a very good hitting ball club. From the hitter standpoint, having the supporting cast, how much does it help you as a hitter? How much does it take some of the pressure off you as a hitter, knowing that maybe you're the guy, but now they have to be concerned about everybody else? Well, you can be protected two ways. Certainly, who's hitting behind you, you know. Uh, and I'll give you an example. The year I led the major leagues in RBIs, uh, I, if Frank Howard, who was playing with Washington at that time, if Hondo had been playing with the Red Sox hitting in my spot, he had probably driven in 150 runs. Yeah. Because in Washington, yeah. he, you know, he had Bernie Allen and a couple of Eddie Brinkman hitting in front of him. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that says that that tells you all, all you got to know right there. So yeah. It, it, yeah. the thing about yeah. our club, though, is I had some writers call me yesterday. And I've said this for a while now. When Tim Anderson goes well, we play great. When he struggles, yeah. we struggle. Yeah. Because he's the guy, you know, about 65% of the time, the team that scores first wins that ball game. And when we were winning all those games early on, Timmy was going, you know, two for three, three for four, uh, and mixing in a home run every now and then, you know, leading off. But uh, you want to get on the board, and the best manager, you guys got one of the greatest managers in baseball. You know, you've been talking, you've been telling me about Bobby, you know, forever. How long just, and I, I really, uh, you know, love talking baseball with you because of the fact you know what you're talking about. I don't like to talk baseball with people who just guess or who or, or never had a jock strap on, you know. I like to, yeah. to tell, talk baseball with guys who've been out there who know in the heat how easy it is to fail, you know. That's and right. I think I mentioned this story to you about Jack Nicholas when we were playing golf after I retired. He said, Dad, he said, Hawk, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, that year you led in the major leagues and RBIs. Did you ever go up to the plate with a man on third and less than two out and choke? I said, hell yeah, I did. I said, everybody chokes. He said, I'm glad you said it because I choke. And this is Jack Nicholas saying, I choke. Wow. Even. And, you know, pressure is the biggest killer performance, Muley. You know that. It's the yeah. biggest killer performance. The reason I call him for your audience out there, Muley, is because <laughs> Ray Fox is as strong as a mule. <laughs> that was his nickname, Muley. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, the way I the way I handle pressure was when, with Hawk. I used to talk to him, and I'd say, all right, you know, uh, Yaz would be at the plate, men on second or third, whatever, in a big ball game, and he'd pop up and strike out, which he did not do very often. But right. he would, I'd say, all right, Hawk, uh, let's get up here. we gotta go. We got to go to work now. And I'd put all that pressure on him, but at least I recognized it. And if you yeah. have pressure, I mean, you feel it, you better embrace it. You better recognize it because if you don't, that pressure will eat your ass alive and you know it. And yeah. that's what happens you get when you get pitchers. You know, the greatest, I played against Mickey Mantle and, you know, Willie Mays and, you know, all those guys as you did. And the greatest offensive player I have ever played against or never seen, I didn't play against, but I ever saw was Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson was the greatest offense player I ever saw because he put so much pressure, especially on young pitchers, 
to say yeah. he just crumpled a lot of those guys. Yeah, you're right because you walk him, it's a triple. <laughs> you know? And if you yeah. do a fastball, it, it's a home run. Hawk, you know, you mentioned the audience, and, you know, for the Cast audience, you know, they may be thinking about Messersmith and McNally as the first free agents, and, of course, free agency right now is, is very common. People may not realize that you were the first free agent in baseball. I think it was 1967 when you were with the Kansas City A's before they yeah. became the Oakland A's, and you became a free agent because of your love for Charlie Finley, <laughs> and yeah. you, became a, you became a Boston Red Sox. Tell us about the right. story, and, and the most important thing is how it did, uh, what it did for your career to leave Kansas City and go to the Boston Red Sox and play with guys like Reggie Smith and Carl Yastrzemski and others on that Red Sox team. Yeah, George Scott, we had some thunder, you know, yeah. Rico Petrocelli. Well, I was with Kansas City, and we were in Washington, and Charlie Finley fired Alvin Dark, who you played for Alvin. And, right. uh, and so... I, I really got pissed off because we knew we were going to be a heck of a ball club. I was at first base. Dick Green was the second. Campy was at uh, short. Sal Bando was at third. We had Joe Rudy in left. We had Rick Mundy in center, Reggie Jackson in right. And we had some good arms that were coming up. And right. we knew that club was going to be a monster. And it turned out to be once they moved in 68 to Oakland because they won five consecutive divisional titles and three consecutive world championships. And you know, they were only the second team in Major League history to win three consecutive world championships, and you'll never see that again. But yep. the way I got was, I was going really going good. I was red hot. And, and uh, when, I, when he fired Alvin Dark, nobody was saying anything. So finally, I just snapped. And I, the writers came over to me, and I just wore Charlie Finley. Charlie Finley was okay? We, you know it, and I know it. Everybody knew it. Everybody who played for him knew it. And then he, he got upset with it. He called me the next morning. We went to Baltimore the, the next after that game. And he said, son, he said, what are you trying to do? And I treated you like a, like a son. I said, no, sir, Mr. Finley, you have not. He said, well, I've fixed up a, a press conference there at the Lord Baltimore Hotel where we're staying. He said, for noon, and I want a full retraction of everything you said. And I said, Mr. Finley, I'm not going to retract one word I said. And boy, when I said that, he started cussing me out. Finally, he said, I'll call you back in 30 minutes. And he slammed down the phone. Now, at the time, I was making $12,000 a year. And and the only guy swinging the bat at that particular time than I was, was Yastrzemski. And that was 67. That was when they had what they call the greatest pennant race in the history of the game. They had yeah. the Red Sox, White Sox, Tigers, and Twins all within one game of each other with about, what, four or five weeks to go. You remember that. Exactly. And so I was making... I was making $12,000 a year. And then he called me back about 20 minutes later, and he says, well, as of this moment, you are no longer a member of the Green and Gold, and he slammed down the phone. And I, uh, Mike Hershberger was my room, uh, roomie, and uh, Hershberger said, what did he say? I said, he just released me. He said, you lucky son of a guy. <laughs> 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 well, to make a long story short, Two days later, I, was, I got $150,000 from the Red Sox. <laughs> with, with Mr. Yawkin. Hey, Hawk, I got to ask you this. I want to get on your vodka tonic schedule. When can we start having vodka tonics? <laughs> well, let me tell you something. This, this retirement is overrated. It's, that's no <laughs> This is overrated. I got two kinds of days at, at – uh, at four o'clock, 
I'll have my first Smirnoff and tonic, okay, <laughs> on Monday through Friday. Then on Saturdays and Sundays, if it's a good TV day, and today is going to be a good TV day because of the game, I'll have my first uh, Smirnoff and tonic at 2 o'clock. So, you know, that's that's my schedule now. Instead of getting up and going to play golf or whatever, I'll just sit here. On my, I watch a lot of TV. I watch a lot of Walker, Texas Ranger, and a lot of – I've got uh, America's Got Talent. I've fallen in love with that show, and I'm watching Gunsmoke right now. I love J.M.R. Farnell. <laughs> and I'm getting blisters. I'm getting blisters on my butt. <laughs> that's Hawk, you're a good man. <laughs> uh, you're a good man. Hawk, before I let you go, you have to tell the story again. How you For those, again, Hawk Harrelson, was the first to wear batting gloves in Major League Baseball. Tell the story, Hawk, because a lot of people don't realize they see everybody wear gloves. They see they see more players wearing gloves and very few not wearing gloves. George Brett stands out as one who does it. It's rare. But tell the story quickly about the batting gloves, how it started with you, and how other greats looked at you and said, wow, that looks pretty good. All right. Well, first of all, I was I was platooning at the time in Kansas City, and uh, I was making uh, six thousand dollars a year, which was a minimum. So, you know, my first two years in the big leagues, I made more money playing golf, shooting pool, and arm wrestling than I did playing major league baseball. <laughs> so, you got to supplement your income when you're making six thousand dollars a year, and you're spending thirty. So, Ed Bolton and I used to play Sammy Esposito and Gino Simoli. We used to play on a $25 Nassau. And we went out and we played this thing. And we beat them out of a lot of money. And I go to the ballpark night, at night. Uh, the Yankees were in town. And they were going to pitch Jim Coates, who was a hard-throwing right-hander. So I wasn't going to play. Well, I get to the ballpark, and the Yankees switch. They're going to pitch Whitey Ford. Well, I go to the, uh, take batting practice, and I got this blister from playing 27 holes that day. And I had come right from the golf course to the ballpark, and I remembered I had my golf glove and my jeans upstairs. So when the game started, I had this flaming red golf glove, and I come out to that golf glove because of that blister on my left hand. And don't you know Whitey hung me a curveball, and I hit it right over that 421 sign out there in Kansas City. And then I hit another one later on off Pete Mickelson later in that game, so I had two home runs. But when I came to the plate the first time with that flaming red golf glove, the Yankees were all over me. I can't tell you over the air what they were calling me, but they were calling me names. And all of a sudden, after I hit that second home run, they didn't say anything. Well, the next day, the Yankees come out. You know how in Kansas City in the old ballpark, you had to come down that long runway to get to the field from the visiting clubhouse. All the Yankees had red golf gloves on. Mickey had mantle, had a block. Mickey had to go out and buy two dozen flaming red golf gloves. And that's how it got started. That's a great story. That's a great story, Tony. I don't know if you ever heard that story or not, but no. you know you can say you can say what you want about free agency and batting gloves. You just listen to the man who started both of those. Free the agency, Hall of Famer. He, Ray, the, the Hall, Hall of Famer. Famer. The Ford C. No, Frick no, you're you're exactly right. The Ford Frick, and I can't wait till next summer. I was looking forward to this summer to hear the induction speech. I look even more forward to it next year when you go in. Hawk, appreciate your time. Go get that special drink that you have ready to go and watch all kinds of baseball because you, you deserve it. And, and you know what? I keep telling my wife, Carol, I, I know that retirement is not fun. So that's why I enjoy working. 
and talking to good people like Cody and Tony, and especially to have you come on with us today has been very special. Well, listen, you give Carol a big hug and kiss for me, and also Cody and Tony, you're working with a great man. You're working with my all, one of my all-time favorite people, plus a great player, and I enjoyed it, and I've got 51 minutes yet before my first uh, Smirnoff and tonic. <laughs> but it's, well, I, I'll, I'll say this, Hawk. You like me from the beginning because I was telling the guys yesterday that High Corbett Field had those backfields, and you you wanted extra BP, and you say, bring this kid over because he's a catcher, and he throws good BP with a four-seam fastball. I remember that. I remember that. You, and so uh, you, you, <laughs> you finally figured that out, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Great talking to you uh, guys. Hawk, uh, thanks for your time, buddy. Tell Bobby Dalton I said I'll give him my best, would you? We'll do that. Thanks, Hawk. Okay. Talk to you all later. How about that? That's just gold right there. Well, it's, you know, 51 minutes till I'm in my first smearing off. <laughs> couple curses in there. I mean, this, oh, <laughs> God, this retirement thing's overrated. <laughs> I, I love when he was I love the part where he goes, oh, you know, I sit at home and I'm watching Walker, Texas Ranger and America's Got Talent. I, I, I love that show. It's like you went from being a player to one of the greatest broadcasters of all time to watching America's Got Talent every single week. <laughs> but I guess yeah, that's what retirement I mean. is. And you, you and there, there, you know, kind of take you behind the curtain. There have been so many ex-teammates, guys who played against him, who have all reached out. How's Ray? How is Ray doing? Everybody, once he was off the broadcast, everybody so concerned, really, really concerned. And obviously, there was a reason. 2.30, let's get him on. The voice of your Oakland Athletics, Ken Korak, is going to join us here in a second. Somebody who had so much respect for Ray, worked around each other for so many years. Ken Korak, Hello. how are you? Hey, Chris Townsend, how you doing? Well, you know, I, I think what we're doing today is, is where we're – we're really paying tribute to a man we loved and what he mean to all of us in our careers. But, you know, more importantly, what he meant to us personally, as well as you knew Ray and you traveled with Ray and he had so many conversations with him. We just wanted to hear from you to talk about the great Ray Fossey. Yeah, it's been a tough couple of days, Chris, as I know it has been for you. And we spent 25 years together, as you know, so. Uh, that's about what 13 years worth of spending time around somebody when you consider six month season, and you could add the, the spring training and the post seasons as well. So, um, it's been tough, but there's so many great memories of Ray. And I think in a, in a time like this, Chris, the memories, I think, put a smile on your face too. And it, there's a poignancy to it, but, um, you know, I've, I've really, I've thought a lot about some of the the postseason games we did together going back to our first game was 2000. I think we did about 43 postseason games and Ray, he was great all the time, but he really came alive in the postseason. And it was just such a thrill because there was, you know, all the strategy involved because, um, you know, so much is riding on, on every pitch in a postseason game. And, 
you know, one of Ray's great strengths, as you know, Chris, was to take you inside that the dynamic between a pitcher and a catcher and the strategy there. So uh, we had some great times for sure. Yes, no doubt about it. And I always thought it was Radio Gold when he would come over from the TV and sit in between you and Vince. I always loved that because the, the conversation and the way you guys bounced off each other, you, you had to feel like this is something special. Well, those were Fosse days, and that phrase yeah. was coined by Bill uh, because they started working together when Ray joined the radio team in 1986. And, yeah, I feel the same way about when we – it was a real treat when he was on the air with us, with Vince. And, of course, before that, when I, was work, when I worked with Bill for 10 years. And, you know, Bill and Ray had a real special relationship because Bill was a catcher himself and was a very good one in his high school days. I think he played a little semi-pro ball so. Uh, they really had, they had a bond because of their, their love for catching. And, and, you know, Chris, even though Ray over the years did more, obviously more TV than radio, he really enjoyed being with us on the radio because, as you know, and especially in the last several years, he could have taken some time off. But that was, that was not who Ray was. And he really wanted to work every game. And uh, I, I think he embraced radio and he understood. And it's not that easy. It's not that easy, Chris, to go from one medium to the other, because, as you know, TV isn't I've said this forever, that that TV really is more of an analyst medium. And because of the nature of the of the medium, radio is more of a play by play person's medium. But he really learned how to do that and how to bridge those things. And and so he he, it was uh, like I said, it was it was a tree. He learned a lot of lessons early in. You know, I could go on and on, as I and, and so could you, of course. But one of the things that really stands out about Ray was that he never took for granted that he could just walk in the booth as a former player. He didn't rest on his laurels. He worked really hard to be a baseball broadcaster. And you've seen the notebooks that he carried around with him, uh, Chris, and the voluminous notes and stats and figures and his thoughts, reflections on certain ball games and between the notes that he kept and the fact that he had a photographic memory, nothing got by him, right? You could mention a game 30 years ago and it was like a two, one pitch in the fourth inning and he'd remember it. So it was uncanny that he, you know, he really had that great recall. I can't tell you how many times doing all those interviews that I did with him, where I would say, how do you remember that? How do you remember yeah. in 1974, the World Series, this count, this hit? I'm like, how, like, it was amazing. Well, I think one of the reasons was that he was totally immersed in it. I don't think anybody loved the game of baseball any more than Ray, and Ray may have loved it more than anybody I've known. And so he lived it. It was his life. He loved it. Even off the field, he watched a lot of games, and, and he paid attention to the other teams as well. It wasn't just that he was prepared for the – to do the to do our club but he knew a lot about the opposing teams so uh he just had a feel for the game he, he loved the game and i think that that's one of the things that really um you know always was a kind of a shining thing about ray that you could look back and say that you know he never cheated the game and he loved the game attention to detail that was truly yeah. one of his strengths that's right. And the other thing, too, I'm not sure that many people are aware that going back to the 80s, he did the pregame show. A's warm-up was his show. 
And we think of him as an analyst, but he was, I think he deserves some credit as an interviewer too, Chris, because for all those years, over 30 years, he did that two-part interview. And I thought it was fascinating. And if it was a 7.05 game, he came on at 6.45, opened the show, did the, the interview in two parts, a commercial in between, and then closed the show after that. And, and as Vince was saying the other day, you know, when Ray walked into the opposing clubhouse or down on the field and asked someone to do an interview, you know, he had kind of a cachet that he, that he carried with him. So he was able to, uh, you know, uh, move, you know, easily and freely, um, even around the, like a visiting clubhouse. And he got a lot, he got everybody, all the great stars, all the behind the scenes figures. And, um, you know, I think those shows, and he, you know, he kept every show, Chris, every show I think has been cataloged and they're now, uh, transferred into kind of some kind of uh, kind of digital form, and all those shows belong in some kind of a baseball museum, because I don't know how many this it has to be thousands of hours of uh, A's warm up interviews that that he did with, I mean just countless people. So that's another kind of aspect of Ray that I'm not sure that you know people are fully aware of. Yeah, we had actually talked about Ray. We actually talked to Ray about taking a lot of those and, and running them on A's cast, making it like a segment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would still like to do that. Obviously, we're going to need to let his family grieve and have their time. But, uh, you know, you think of one of the all-time great A's, even though he didn't play a long time with the A's, but it's far more than that, right? As a community speaker and the tours that he went on speaking and then all mm-hmm. the years on television and radio. I mean, there's so many generations that have grown grown up with Ray Fossey as A's fans, it's unbelievable. I've said that this that he transcended the generation because people who are longtime A's fans, and you and I both know people who went to the first game in 1968 and have been A's fans ever since then. And when you could get Ray talking about some of the rich history and going back, of course, to the world championship teams of 73 and 74, so he had that ability to to bridge the years and the, and the generations. So uh, he and I think he handled that responsibility really well too, Chris, to represent the club. And you know, you talked about the going out and speaking. He headed up at one time. The A's had a speakers bureau. Yeah. And Ray headed that up, and he would go all over. And he he actually worked in the front office for a time. He sold advertising. And he would go all over the Bay Area and take former players or current players with him and offseason if it was the hot stove league or whatever. And he he was actually a great public speaker. He was at ease um, doing that, uh, Chris. And, and, of course, people loved to hear him talk and, and hear the stories. And the, the stories were plentiful. Yeah, and I think about with Ray and how he felt about you, how he felt about all of us. You know, I mean – an ex-player who's won a World Series championship could look down. He didn't, he never treated any of us like that. I mean, it was amazing the time that he would give, the conversations with everybody. Cody and I talked about it earlier. It was the little details with his his relationships with people that I think I think meant so much when you say to all of us. Well, counting the game broadcast and the pregame, you did hundreds of interviews with him. Yeah. And he loved it. He just loved it. And the other thing on a personal level for me, Chris, 
is, as you know, I replaced Lon Simmons. I was hired in the winter of 95. My first year was 96. And he, you know, he didn't big league me. And, you know, Ray and Lon were very close friends and, and off the field as well. They did a lot of things together. And so that could have been a difficult transition for Ray to see one of his best friends uh, you know, no longer part of the broadcast team. Long was one of my idols. So that was a potentially awkward situation. But he welcomed me into the booth from the first day. I never felt there was much of a transition. And that's because of Ray. Uh, it wasn't because of me, but the fact that he reached out to make me feel comfortable. And, uh, you know, that feeling lasted for uh, the 26 years that we worked together. You know, you think about the legacy, and of course you did the book, and you were very close with Bill King, you know, just the legacy. We've lost some all-time greats, but just the legacy of A's baseball with A's radio and A's television. We feel really strongly about it and just trying to carry it on, on into the future, you know, Chris, because beginning with Monty Moore and some of the greats who worked on radio and TV, and then, of course, Bill and Lon. And I said this before, the most uh, brilliant thing that the A's new ownership did back in 1981 to try to rekindle interest in the team was hiring Bill and Lon. And that pairing was golden, as you know, uh, it was just so instrumental, um, as that franchise would really, you know, take off and then reach a peak in the bash brothers days. But all of us have felt that I think who've worked on A's radio and, and TV that as I suppose you, every, every team, every market, you know, could say the same thing, but I know, that uh, Vince and I and Kipe, all of us, Dallas, you know, we could go right down the list that um, it's important, I think, to reflect back and think about uh, those who kind of paved the, the, the road for us and blazed the trail for us. And uh, we're just trying to kind of keep those seats warm right now. And the relationship that you saw that Ray had with the players, whether it's on the plane, it's on the bus, it's in the clubhouse, there was that respect that the players had for him, and there was that respect that he had for the players. Well, he was also the chairman of the catcher's union. (laughs) So (laughs) we used to kid him about that, too. Like, you know, Ray, this is like the 15th day in a row that you've had a catcher on your pregame show. Right. So <laughs> he always gravitated toward the catchers, but he did. And he was very comfortable in the clubhouse and he did spend a lot of time. He didn't, he didn't impose his will on a player, Chris, because he understood that there was still a, a line there. But if any player sought his counsel, then Ray of course would be there for that player. And if you talk to some of the catchers and many of them who've uh, played for the A's over the years, they'll tell you that, Ray was just a great resource. Well, and especially in an era where all of a sudden you had ex-players, you know, with the the nerds are taking over the game and everything. Ray was smart enough to understand, I'm going to need to adapt with it. I may not love it, but he was able to adapt with it. Talk about that. Well, yeah, and we had some fun with it because he still was an old school guy. And I I don't think he fully embraced some of the, kind of newfangled changes in the game and the analytics and stuff. But that just, I think he added some spice to the broadcast because I think he kind of played the curmudgeon from that standpoint. And it was, you know, there was a lot of humor to it, but he, he understood where the game was going and he certainly embraced um, what the A's were trying to do with Sabre metrics and Moneyball and all that as well, because, you know, Chris, he loved the A's. 
I mean, that's the, the I mean, I talked about his, his love of baseball and he loved the A's. And the embodiment of that was his scream during Coco's walk off in game four of the 2012 division series, of course, which I think is just like the perfect example of two things of Ray's just unbridled, pure joy to be at a ball game and especially a big game and his love for the for the A's franchise as well. It's a great point because I said this earlier in the show that, you know, obviously when you work for a team, you're going to like the team you work for, but you could work for another team and now you like that team. It's like anytime you work for a company and you go to another company, you're always going to try and be loyal to that company. But a but Ray truly loved the Oakland A's. I, you can't say that enough. No, he did. And it came out in every broadcast that he did. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, Chris, the thrill of being with him in the postseason. And when you have those, those games where, you know, and, and obviously the A's had a lot of disappointment, but, you know, we did all those winner-take-all games and the, the wild-card games and the fifth game of those playoff series. And you could see the intensity in Ray come out even – you know, sitting next to him in the broadcast booth because you don't accomplish what he did as a player without being a great competitor. And I don't think he, I don't think he fully lost that uh, even when he wound up in the booth. No. And, and, you know, the one thing too, when you think about Ray Fossey is just how he bridged all these eras together. Cause I got a buddy who was a police captain uh, down here in the South Bay and I brought his family behind home plate and, you know, I brought some players over to say hi. He didn't care about that. He wanted it. He wanted because he grew up watching Ray Fossey, right? He grew up watching Ray Fossey play. He grew up watching Ray Fossey uh, as a broadcaster. So it's like it's like Ray brought all these generations all together. And he was like the only guy that could do that. Well, he joined the team in 73, as you know. So and, and he played for what three years with the A's. But after that. He came back to the Bay Area. Yes, he wound up back in Cleveland and played for the Brewers and the Mariners briefly at the end, but still called the Bay Area home. So you're looking at almost a 50-year association with the club, you know, 36 years on the air. And so, yeah, you're right. And, you know, we talk about Steve Usenich, David Feldman, and with, with – uh, you know, Ray, these are people who, who have a, you know, we've lost that, of course, with, with Ray now being gone, but just an incredible sense of the history of the organization. So we have to keep that alive, right? I think it's incumbent upon all of us to, to keep the, the history alive because it is such a, a rich history. What are you going to miss most every day about not seeing him? Well, it's a great question. I, I think the biggest thing I'm going to miss about him is that it's I mean, the kind of thing with Ray was, hey, Ray, baseball. That's the first thing that I used to say to him. Hey, Ray, we got baseball tonight. And he'd answer back, you know, hey, yeah, we got a ball game. It's baseball. He was synonymous with baseball. And when spring training begins and people hear his voice, uh, they know that, um, you know, it's it's time to turn the page, that winter is almost over. and it's time to immerse yourself in, in baseball for the next six or seven months. So, you know, I'll miss his friendship, obviously. He was he was just incredibly supportive of me, uh, Chris, on a personal level. So, you know, when you lose someone that you've spent so much time with, and, and, you know, this is not about me. 
in any way, shape, or form. But I've lost, you know, five of my broadcast partners now. And I guess it's a byproduct of when you get older, but it, it doesn't get easy. Uh, it doesn't get any easier when it happens. And, and so, and I, you know, I'm feeling that right now. And, and so it's, it's going to be really, it's a tough question to answer because it's not going to really sink in. I don't think Chris until the season starts next year and he's not there. We were just so used to having him there and he did all the spring training he's with us. So uh, it's going to be a tough year from that standpoint, but, We'll do some things to honor his legacy, Chris, and I think that'll be a, a focus for us, and I know it will be for you on the broadcast next year. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's just it's going to be as someone that I I talk to every day, not just on the air but off the air, and we'd eat together, and you know, it's just it's you know, whenever I was on the road with the team, he always made me sit next to him and the way he was always checking on me. If I was okay, did I need anything when we were on the road? And it's just, it's hard. It's just, he, he just seemed like a mountain of a man and like something like this could never happen. He was almost like a Superman to us. And that's right. And that's why it was still shocking. We knew he was ill, but we didn't know that it was going to happen this quickly or if, if it was going to happen. And he kept it private and he worked until the first week. His last game was what, August 3rd or 4th, somewhere in there. Chris, I don't, don't remember exactly. And that's just a little over two months ago. So he was going to work. I, you know, we don't, we don't know the details of what, nor, nor is it our business of what he was dealing with, especially at the end. But, you know, he wanted to be, he still wanted to be involved in baseball and, and be on the air and, and still have the same great work ethic, Chris, every day while, you know, clearly he was battling a, an illness that turned out to be terminal. Well, we, we, we loved him. We love you. And we want to keep you, keep you doing A's baseball for a long, long time. So uh, be well, be safe, and uh, let's tee it up soon. Let me say this, too, in closing. I know you got to go. This would be a collective thank you to everyone who's texted and called and the voicemails, the emails. I even got, haven't gotten to Twitter yet. So it really reminds me a little bit, Chris, of the day that, that Bill died because I, you know, I've been blown away. It's not, it wasn't unexpected, but still you're, you're blown away. It just reinforces how much Ray meant to so many people, how the mark that he left and how he impacted so many lives because I could spend the next two or three days, Chris, I don't know that I'd be able to, you know, to answer everybody, respond to everyone. So that, that's that been such a, a heartwarming part of this in a, in a difficult time. All right, buddy. Be safe. Okay, bud. Thanks. Uh, he, he's right. It, it, it When the news came out, so we got notified of Ray's passing. And they wanted to make sure that we all knew we didn't, you know, they didn't want us to get it from Twitter or from somebody else. And they called all of us. And we knew. And then once the press release went out and people saw it on, I'm sure, Twitter and Instagram and everything, um, my phone just blew up, just absolutely blew up. And it just goes to show how everybody felt about this man. Because if you're old enough to remember as a player, you respect him. And then, you know, all the years broadcasting, that's why I say he's the one like glue guy that brought generations together. So whether you're 16 years old or you're in your seventies, Ray Fossey brought everybody together. He was A's baseball. 
He's the one guy that could say, I was there for that, and I was there for that, and I was there when this happened. I remember when Canseco came in, and Canseco said, Ray, you still have the best handshake in the business. <laughs> I mean, you think of Maguire and Canseco and how big, big these legends are, and you think of Ricky Henderson, and, you know, Ray Fossey's been around for it all. Do we have Ray's home run from the 1974 World Series off Don Sutton? Uh, I do, yes. Uh, do you want, you want me to play it? And and by the way, coming up here at the top of the hour, Ray Fossey, and the, remember, what we, we, we went to Ray and said, hey, let's do this Ray and Friends kind of thing where we take legends in the game and you two just have a conversation. And I'll, I'll just back out and let you go. And coming up at 3 o'clock, Jim Palmer, the Hall of Famer, with Ray Fossey. But let's hear Ray Fossey go deep in 1974. The strike one pitch from the right-hander, Sutton. And there's the curve, hits deep to left field. Back goes Buckner. The curveball is hit out of here, and it's two to nothing. Fossey gets the home run. Sutton hung a curveball for Ray Fossey, and he jumped all over it and hit it out of here. Now you might ask, why why do we play that home run? Well, there's a story behind that home run off Don Sutton because Fossey told us, it was last year, like last April, I went back and double-checked. I think it was like the end of March, early April. We were just talking about when we were replaying those games from the 1974 World Series against the Dodgers, we were talking about Don Sutton, and Ray Fossey told us this story. But I think that series for me personally was great because I had broken up a fight in the, in the summer, and I came back and played in the postseason against the Orioles and, and hit a home run off of Grant Jackson and then a home run off Don Sutton, and he threw at me later in an old-timers game. Did you say Don Sutton threw at you in an old-timers game? <laughs> it was 1987, I think. I, it was my second year broadcasting, and we had an old-timers. They used to call them the equitable old-timers game, and uh, Don Sutton was in an A's uniform in the visiting dugout. And I thought that was a little strange, but yeah, he, you know, he was part of the, the Dodgers world series and all that. And, um, so I came up to hit and it called time and Sutton came out and he pitched, he threw one pitch, he threw it over my head. And I said, what are you doing? He says, that's for 1974. I said, Don, get over it. That's 13 years ago. <laughs> so he threw one pitch, threw it over my head, walked off the mound, went back to dugout and that was it. Unreal. Oh, I mean, seriously, Don Sutton, you're, you're going to just walk out, throw one pitch just because a guy went deep off you in a World Series game. Shows you how different uh, the game is played today versus years ago. And by the way, how great would it bring? How great would it be if we could bring back Old Timers Day? That oh, would be incredible. I think we I think we talked about that once before. It's the, some of the, the names we'd have that played in that game. <laughs> no, it would be, yeah. I mean, we're going to bring back Giambi. I mean... You know, Jose would play. Ricky would play. That that would be that, that would be incredible. And that story, I could when, when he said it. And you know that you know the thing that I am going to miss too the laugh. Oh, he I, always had a great laugh. It, it's it was just it was joyful. That laugh is is for sure going to be missed. Well, I got I got one piece of audio. I think it was uh, it was Aaron Dolan, Sean Doolittle's wife, shared this piece of audio on on Twitter. And I think I sent it over to you. I forget how many years ago it was, but uh, we can maybe ask Kype about it when we talk to him at 3.30. 
but it was a clip of Ray and G Kipe meeting the Philly Fanatic the first time when the team was in Philly. Uh, here's this uh, piece of audio. Oh, hey, what's up? Hey, you made it. Our partner was asking for you last night. You're the biggest star of the show, man. You're the star. Wow, yeah. this is. What an honor. This is a bucket this list. This is an honor. Wow. We How had are a- you, Fanatic? Give me some. Hey, did you know Ray Fossey won two World Series championships with the Athletics and two gold gloves and was an all-star twice? Did you know that? That's my partner right there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> How's Tommy Lasorda? <laughs> Fanatic, you're the best. You're the best. You're the best. How come you're not getting wet? Oh, Philly cheesesteak. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. Wow. Are you going to have one or just us? Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. oh, Fanatic, you're the best. Why do I don't think he's done yet? <laughs> Is there a game going on? You, why are you doing this to me? What are you doing, Fanatic? <laughs> It's a hot dog. No, a chili, a cheesesteak. Cheesesteak hat, and I get to keep this? All right, thank you, buddy. This is great. (laughs) Is that when he was, when the fanatic was kissing him? Yeah, and then he was holding, like, the Philly cheesesteak, like, um, uh, like, stuffed animal thing on his face. It was it was a really funny clip that Aaron shared on Twitter. Uh, there were some other good ones, too, because um, we had a couple minutes until we played the, the interview with Jim Palmer. Here's a clip of him asking Matt Chapman after the uh, the Ace clinched the wild card game or birth in the wild card game uh, something about uh, about celebrating. Here's what he uh, – his interaction with Matt Chapman. What do you think mom and dad are thinking right now? As you look at that camera, and I'm sure they're watching. <laughs> Don't get too drunk. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, Dallas Drayton. Don't get too drunk. And then Ray's reaction in the video was so great. Him just laughing. Like, that, that was, it was so good. There were so many good videos that people were sharing on Twitter. And, you know, the first thing I thought of was the um, – was what Ken brought up was – uh, you know, the thing that I'll always remember, besides, you know, the things that we shared with him, was this call uh, that's for me, is always going to be synonymous with, with uh, Ray Fossey. Coco Crisp has had some great at-bats tonight. He has not have a hit. He reached on an air score to run, but he has done a good job handling the different pitches. Smith leads his second in a tie ball game. Valverde deals, and Coco, it's a base hit to right field. Smith to third, up the ball, bobbled and yeah! by Garcia, and the A's have won it. Seth Smith scores from second, a base hit to right field by Coco Crisp. Garcia charging from right, but he bobbled the ball, and once he bobbled it, it was a moot point. The A's are going crazy, back behind the bag at first. Jumping up and down, and the A's have forced a fifth game with a three-run bottom of the ninth inning, and they beat the Tigers by the final of four to three. <laughs> Unbelievable! Fifteen walk-off. Yeah! 
I don't think I could do that scream even if I tried. Like it's just so unbelievable. I was, I was standing with I was standing next to Michael Baird when that happened, and uh, it was hilarious. It was absolutely, and, and I, I'll never forget. You know, obviously, Game Five, the A's would lose, and that was that was one of those things that you didn't want to go home. You didn't want to leave the ballpark. You couldn't believe it was over. You just couldn't believe that this magical ride of 2012 was was going to stop. And I remember I remember hugging all those guys cuz I still had to do the post game show. And everybody was just devastated, right? That 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 we were leaving and that the season was done. I remember hugging all of them and just Vince and and Ken and of course Ray and season was over, and they're all leaving town. Man, great memories. For sure, great memories. But you want great memories here? You know, you think about the battles that the A's had with the Orioles for all those years. And you think about Ray being an American League guy, played his entire career in the American League. And the same for the great Jim Palmer one of the greatest pitchers of all time. And, you know, every single time the Orioles come to town, Ray and Jim Palmer would get together. And I'm sure it was the same thing when Ray would go to Baltimore. Both these guys had so much respect for each other. So when we, once again, started this on A's cast and for A's cast live, this Ray and friends and the and the A's were going to take on the Baltimore Orioles. We thought what couldn't be any better than to have our Ray Fossey and the Hall of Famer, the great Jim Palmer together. Here it is. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live is the Hall of Famer. He's a three-time World Series champion, a six-time All-Star, a three-time AL Cy Young Award winner. He won a gold glove. He led the league in wins, ERA, and, of course, inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1990. Jim, how are you? It's great to have you back on the program. Well, I was going pretty well. I mean, actually, it was four gold gloves. I, I never won one until they <laughs> traded Jim Cott to the National League because <laughs> yeah, he won yeah. 16 in a row. That's, right. <laughs> that's how good he was. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, you know, you know, we miss seeing you. Oh, I know. We miss seeing a lot of things, don't we? Yeah, we do. We do. Hey, Jimmy, I want to ask you, because in today's time, obviously there's no complete games. Shutouts is the big uh, controversy now as far as it's a seven-inning shutout. Does it count as a shutout? And they're doing that. But Bumgarner's no-hitter for seven innings doesn't count. But take us back to 1965 when you came up to the Orioles, but then also in 1966. You're 20 years young. How about that? 20 years, and you're facing the Dodgers in the World Series? Well, not only that. I mean, I'm facing Sandy yeah. Koufax. Yeah. I don't think anybody – I think he was 25-7 and seven that year with about a 195 <laughs> ERA. He didn't pitch game one. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting in your first World Series. We, You know, I got to the big leagues when I was 19. I kind of had to stay there, and I thought they'd send me out, but I stayed all year. And we, we won 94 games, but the Twins won 102. And, 65. Then they would lose to the Dodgers in the World Series. Koufax would mm-hmm. would really dominate the uh, the World Series as he did. I mean, because he was you know <laughs> he was Sandy Koufax. Um, so he because of the Jewish holidays, Don, Don Drysdale um, 
uh, started game one. And Dave McNally, who would eventually win 20 games for us four years in a row, he started game one against uh, Drysdale in, in Los Angeles at Chevrolet Ravine. And, you know, you're 19 years old or just turned 20, and I'm, I'm sitting on the bench and I'm thinking, geez, you know, and then you're thinking, okay, what do I want to do tomorrow? You know, we'll see how today goes. And then Brooks and Frank Robinson hit home runs in the um, in the first inning. And, you know, as somebody that's 20, and we had gotten there and it said, you know, AL uh, uh, loop, loop leaders, uh, you know, <laughs> went, you know, in town to play the Dodgers. And, yep. you know, it was no big deal. And, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, McNally struggles. He, you know, as, as the famous uh, – um, uh, columnist, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Bert Murray writes, he said, you know, the last time you, you saw a, uh, a pitcher stop the, the, the Dodgers running, running game, it was by walking the bases loaded. And that's what Dave McNally did. And then <laughs> Mojabowski came in and struck out 11 and six and two thirds innings. And yeah. I'm sitting on the bench and I'm saying, geez, they got a little, uh, little trouble with a high fastball. Now, Mo also had a great breaking ball and he threw a lot of strikes. He could throw the ball low and away with the best of them. And I'm, but I'm sitting there, so it at least gave me some kind of confidence. But I'm going to face Koufax. And to be honest, all I wanted to do is not embarrass myself. And Jim Palmer embarrassing himself back then <laughs> would have been walking a bunch of guys and, you know, maybe not getting hit that much because I threw so hard enough where that didn't happen. But, you know, all you have to do is walk a couple of guys, as you know, Ray, as sure. well as anybody. And then it's not, it's not, everybody says, well, walk, walks kill you. I always thought it's what happens after yeah. you walk. The guy is, is really important. And as it turned out, I pitched my first shutout. Willie Davis dropped a couple of fly balls. Sandy pitched great into the fifth inning. It was nothing, nothing. I always kind of wonder because we would win six to nothing, first shutout ever. You know, happened to be you know in, in a World Series game when you're 20, the youngest yeah. guy to ever do that, I guess. And still, still, uh, I did broadcast the '81 World Series even when I was playing. And I'm, if Fernando pitches a no hitter in '81, which he, or a uh, shutout, which he was doing quite regularly. He would have been a little bit younger than me, but he gave up three runs in the first inning. I usually didn't root when I did national <laughs> telecast, but I was kind of rooting for him to give up a couple of runs. But we won, and you know, and then we went back to Baltimore, and Wally Bunker, who had been rookie pitcher of the year and had some injuries in 64, now we're in 66. He wins one nothing. McNally comes back, beats Drysdale, a couple of solo, solo home runs in games three by Blair and then Frank Robinson, and you walk out of the stadium four games later and you're world champs. Yeah. And as you know, it's never – I mean, you look back and you say, geez, was it easy? But it really happened very quickly. Jimmy, you, you know the, the one thing that in today's world they say, well, so-and-so's pitching, and you're fa- you, these guys don't face because of the designated hitter in American League. What was it like facing Sandy Koufax? You mean as a hitter? As a hitter. Well, you know, I'm on, de- I'm on deck, right? So Andy Etchman, you know, Etch was a bonus kid out of La Puente, you know, Southern California, Orange County, and, yeah, I don't know. He got seventy-five thousand dollars to sign or something like that. And he had, you know, he had a little kind of kind of turn the bat. Imagine your your the bat's over your right shoulder because he was right-handed hitter, and the bat kind of pointed just a shade towards the pitcher. Well, so I'm on deck, and he, you know, Koufax throws him. Sandy throws him a high fastball, and he, you know, he thinks about swinging at strike one. Throws him another high fastball. Thinks about swinging at strike two. Throws him another high fastball. Thought about swinging at all three, and you know, he didn't. He couldn't get the bat going. Because um, Sandy, you know, so I go up to home plate, and as I'm walking up, I said, radio boss. He said, what? I said, you could kind of <laughs> hear him, but you couldn't see him. And I get up there, and, I, you know, I won my first game in the big leagues with a home run off of Jim Bowden. But, but Jim Bowden was a pretty good pitcher for the Yankees, but he wasn't Kovac. So he throws me the first fastball. 
And I used to use Frank Robinson's R161 because uh-huh. I figured if anybody's going to have good wood, it would be Frank That's Robinson. That's right. <laughs> on his way almost 600 home runs and triple right. crown and all that stuff. We all use so, Reggie's. <laughs> Kopech, yeah, Kopech throws me the first fastball. It starts in the lobby and it ends up on about the third floor. And I'm saying, whoa, wow. wait a minute. So now, you know, you know, I mean, you face guys that had this kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe Sudden Sam McDowell. You, might have, you, caught, you probably caught Sudden Sam McDowell in, in Cleveland. Yeah. But anyway, so now I figured, okay, I, I better get ready. So. You know, I cheat a little bit with the fastball, and he throws me a pitch that looks identical. And next thing you know, Rose Burrell's catching it on the ground. Wow. That was the uh, that was the lobby curveball that looked like a fastball that was going to the third store and, and ended up wow. in the uh, in the lower lobby or the lower basement. You know, that's how good his curveball was. Amazing. And, you know, I think anybody that faced Kofax, everybody used to say he was pretty comfortable, except you, 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 until you looked at the box score the next day, and then you said, gee, that wasn't too comfortable, was exactly. it? Exactly. Five no-hitters and, yeah. you know, a bunch of strikeouts and, you know, 300 and some innings and, you know, an ERA usually around two runs a game. There is nobody that has a memory better than Jim Palmer. Short-term, long-term, it doesn't matter. I mean, facing Kofax. I know. I, that's the reason I wanted to bring it up because you're facing Kofax. You know, Jimmy, the, the one thing, you know, you're talking about the walks. You know, I, I know that I'm jumping ahead because I, I know you would probably mention this before, but I want to ask you, over 300 home runs, not much over, what, 303, something like that in your career, never gave up a grand slam. Why? Well, Tim Kirchin, he used to write for the Baltimore Sun. Now he, you know, does ESPN, um, you know, baseball mm-hmm. tonight and does some games for him and whatever. He Probably five, six years ago, you know, when you actually could go on the field and talk to the players and yeah. the managers and, you know, get kind of do do your homework, uh, you know, the way we've always done it right, traditionally. Right yeah. um, and I'm down on the field about four o'clock in Camden Yards in Baltimore, and Tim's there, and he comes walking across, and you know, I mean, I've known him for years because he was a beat writer for the Baltimore Sun, and he says, "Cakes," uh, he said, "the boys in Bristol uh, said you won't know what you know what this is," and with that, he takes a little piece of paper out of his back pocket, and there's 13 names on it, and I look at him, and I said. Must have been the guys I walked with the bases loaded. He said, "I told him you, I told him you would know, you know." That, and I said, "No, no, no, Tim. I don't really remember. I mean, I remember walking guys with the bases loaded, but it was the only logical answer to the least piece of paper he gave me. So apparently, I walked thirteen guys with the bases loaded. So I walked in thirteen yeah. runs. And I don't know, were you any good at math? Because I was. And I always felt." That one was a lot better than four. Well, you know, you know, and, and, and thinking ahead to what Buck Showalter did with Barry Bonds, so, he intentionally yeah. walked well, him with the bases loaded. I mean, obviously different than what you did, but as he said, I'll give up one, but if he hits it out, it is four. Well, no, you're right. I mean, and not that I think in today's game, you know, if I pitched in Camden Yards, I would have been a different pitcher. Yeah. Number one, I would. I don't know. Everybody says, well, I, you know, you probably couldn't have pitched in this year. And I said, well, <laughs> I on. might have been able to figure it out. I mean, I, I, the Orioles certainly aren't as good as the teams that I played on. But, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I mean, if somebody told me you need to instead of getting 27 outs, you know, we'll be real happy if you get 18 outs. Isn't that amazing? Um, and I would say, now, I don't have to go back to AAA in Rochester, you know, because that's what it would, would have happened. <laughs> if, sure. If, if you went to Earl Weaver and you were one of the four starters and, you you know, you guys had that kind of staff and, I mean, even in Cleveland a little bit, and then especially in Oakland. If you had said, well, you know, hey, I'm going out there tonight. I'm going to get you maybe 18, 19 outs. They were saying, what are you talking about? Yeah. But the game's changed. You know, they look at the numbers. You know, you just saw last night John Means. Now, John Means, I mean, his ER, he, he gave up two runs and his ERA went up. That's how well he's been right. pitching. And, um, you know, he's but he's a guy, if you look at his 
first, second, and third time through the lineup, he's an anomaly because third time is better than the first time. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, Rich Hill, you know, he had those kind of numbers in the World Series. They made out of a 17 or 18. And Dave Roberts, third time through the lineup, you're gone. And, you know, it used to irritate the heck out of him. So, sure. you know, we just had – we didn't have 14-man staffs. We didn't have nine guys in the bullpen. You know, we used to have – I mean, Davey Leonard was our long guy, you know, who had gone 16-4, and 20-5, and 15-3, and and a ball, double-A, and triple-A. Had trouble making the club. He was waiting, you know, to come in as a long man, one hitter in the middle of the pennant race after not pitching for two months. It's just a whole different era. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that our guys are any better. I just think – on you know, I mean – Lazardo's going to pitch today. I saw him pitch what last Sunday when when right. he broke the streak. I mean, he's 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 going to have a heck of a career if he stays healthy. You know, um, I mean, you know, he's got great stuff. He's got a good slider. He's got a pretty good changeup. Yeah, I don't think he has a feel yet for right. when to throw him. So you're hoping that you know between Murphy or whoever's catching that day, and Bob Melvin, of course, was great. You know, you know, and Scott Emerson knows his stuff that they're going to figure it out. But I was really impressed. I mean, he reminded me. A little bit of uh, Johan Santana. That's that's probably who he reminded me of the most of. Well, you know, Jimmy, the, the one thing Chris Townsend and I have talked about this, about Jesus Lazardo, and obviously catching Kenny Holtzman, who you know quite well. When he faced you guys in 73, 74, it was like 110 pitches, 109 just fastballs, BP fastball, yeah. back and forth, curveball. He just threw those two pitches, and that's all he did, and he won the game. What does it take for a pitcher – who it seems with Lazardo is maxed out on everything. What does it take for him to back off a little bit and throw a BP fastball, especially in a, in a fastball count? Well, you'd like to think innings and experience. Yeah. And um, I mean, look at look at our closer. <laughs> you yeah. Know, you know, I don't know if you did. You do the game last night. Yes, I did. Yep. You wanted to jump out of the. Yep. You wanted to jump out of the booth. You wanted to move up in the box. You wanted to look yep. for seventy-five. That's right. And you know, you wanted to do what Chapman did. I mean. You know, he's been, the last two games, he walked two guys to, you know, with a one-run lead, and, and they actually, the Yankees tied it up, and the Orioles won an extra innings the other night. And then last night, the A's had two guys on, but nobody out, you know, trailing, what, three to two. And mm-hmm. so you're kind of, he's kind of living. I mean, you don't want to be walking that type of all the time. But but what I think Lizardo, you know, if he stays healthy, I mean, incredible stuff. It looks like he has a great windup. I'm not sure you want to quick pitch people like he does. Right. I don't even know how old he was, 22, 23. Yeah. But because I don't think you need to do that, I just think if he learns to throw his fastball out of the middle of the plate, because you know as well as anybody, you know, catching all those years, the plate's 17 inches. Right. If you take the edge of the ball and you put it on the corner, you get that plate about 21 to 22 inches. And and the Kenny Holtzmans of the world, right? And the Scotty McGregors, you know, Holtzman threw harder than him, but they both had fastball changeups, occasional breaking ball, and the game becomes a little bit easier. It's never easy, but it becomes less difficult. So. You know, hopefully he'll learn that. Hopefully he'll be, um, you know, healthy. I mean, you know, if you look at Sean Manaya, it looks like he's kind of has a better idea now of what he needs to do to be successful. And, of course, the key to him, right. as you know, is just to be, be be healthy and if he does that. But I like the A's. So, you know, I like their ball club. I think they'll make some changes in their bullpen because they have a couple guys at the back that, you know, don't match up with some of the other teams. But at the end of the day, they got a nice little ball club. I, you know, it. it I, I'm not sure they're going to run off a lot of 13-game winning streaks, but as you mentioned, uh, yeah. <laughs> everything's got to kind of fall in place for that to happen. Right. Jimmy, 1971, Palmer Dobson, Quayar McNally, four 20-game winners. Last time that ever happened, never happened again. 
you know, I caught three 20-game winners in 73, which was the last time that happened. Probably never happened again. What was that season like for you? A four-man rotation. And the four of you, and what really ticked me off was you guys came into Cleveland. I, I, I don't know if you remember this or want to remember, but you guys took a picture in the bullpen of the four 20-game winners, and you guys hadn't won them yet. I'm thinking this weekend you're going to have your 20, <laughs> 20 wins. <laughs> so you're taking well, this. I mean, you know, and we did it in those ugly orange uniforms. It, you know? Well, yeah, uh, that's uh, right. But, yeah, you know, so it, it's even more, <laughs> you know, more ostentatious uh, display of what was to come. I was the last guy. Um, I was the last guy to uh, win 20 on that Sunday. And, I, you know, I was kind of desperate. Yeah. <laughs> desperate. I think I ended up winning three to nothing. I'm trying to think of the bonus kid. Uh, Allen, right-handed pitcher. Pitch, you guys got him from the Dodgers. Um, he was pitching. It was nothing, nothing. I mean, I had a ball off Nettles. foot, hit him in the foot and hit him in the chin. And they gave him an error. I hit a ball out to left field. Pinson kind of short-legged and went in between the left fielder. That was another error. And finally, I doubled down the line. I mean, I got thrown out going from second to third. I mean, I was – it, it was a badge, you know, kind of a badge of honor to win 20 games back then. And so I figured I'm going to be – you know, it's going to be three 20-game winners and Jim Palmer with 19. But as it turned out, I think we won um, – you know, we won 3 nothing, And uh, it, was, it was kind of do that. But, you know, the the, the, the greatest thing – we had a, one of the great pitching coaches of all time, George yeah. Amberton. And yes. – George used to, on his hat, he used to put four little lines and then when, and then he'd put a line across them. And I said, we said, George, what is that? He said, well, those are your complete games. So every time we get to five, I, you know, I do the four little, you know, little, little marks and then the, the hashtag across it. He says, cause I have a, uh, I have a $5,000 uh, bonus. If you guys get to 50, 50 complete games. Wow. Well, we pitched 70 complete games that year out of the four of us. And, um, he never had the bonus. That was just George's way of trying to get us to motivate us. He was just telling us because he knew, and Ezra Weaver used to always tell you, you know, I don't know what some of the, your managers, Dick Williams or whatever, used to tell your guys. He said, but there, there aren't any guys out there that are better than you in the bullpen. So, you know, why don't you finish what you started? And the other thing is when I was 19, I roomed with Robin Roberts. Yeah. You know, Robin had 270 wins, 605 starts, 300 complete games. You know, used to win 22, 23, 25 games a year. Ended up in Cooperstown with 286. And I said, Robin, how'd you win all those games? He said, well, Jim, I pitch on Sunday, and then I come back and relief on Tuesday. So I had a pretty good mentor. when I, He was he was twice my age. He was 38. I was 19. Wow. And he was there about two and a half months because he was trying to win 300 games, and they took him out of the rotation, and he went down to Houston. But when you get somebody, and, you know, I don't know if you had a mentor catching-wise, but if you get somebody that knows they're going to take – that you're going to take their job or somebody, a young pitcher like myself at 19, and they're still, um, you know, have enough class, have enough smarts to say, you know what, if I teach him, maybe, you know, down the road, he can teach other people. And that's yeah. what Robin Roberts did for me. And uh, what a, you know, obviously he's passed away, but what a wonderful man who taught me how to pitch. Jimmy, it's really easy. You rock back. You got a great arm. I hope you're smart enough to understand that. You got a fastball you can throw for a strike. You got a fastball, you can throw for a ball. Same with your breaking ball. Good luck. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's some great <laughs> advice. You know, uh, it was. Chris, it was perfect Chris Townsend just did a wow when you said 50 complete games. You know, that made, made I mean, think about that. 70 complete games. He wanted us to pitch. <laughs> well, he wanted. How many did you have? Well, we had 70. You know. 70. <laughs> we'll be lucky to have five. <laughs> oh, because there's seven. No, we well, seven yeah, innings. If you get five, you've had a real good year, and <laughs> we're not counting the double header. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you know, it's funny. You, t you know, Ray, you talked about the no-hitter. 
and listen, hey, you know, Baumgartner really pitched a great game, and and you know we've had a couple of reg, you know normal no hitters, and you know my only no hitter was against the A's in '69. You know, I'd been on the disabled list. I came back. You know, no, no rehab, 52 days on the disabled list, six innings, shut out innings against the Twins, and then 150 pitches and, and, and got a bunch of runs and, and beat the A's with her no-hitter in Baltimore. But it, now it's it's just it's, it's just kind of strange the way that, you know, they count. We used to always count the pitches. Yeah. But now, I mean, 95 pitches in Geyser, you know, they're kind of, you know, it, it, it's kind of like you're leaning towards the dugout. <laughs> you know, back yeah. then, I mean, I still remember, you know, when when Weaver would tell, give you the ball, I put it in your locker. He goes, "Don't be, don't be looking, don't yeah. be looking into the dugout." Yeah. You know, oh, uh, you know, it's just that the game has changed a little bit. And you know, I guess you know, again, the analytics are telling you, "Hey, we'll bring in somebody that's better." But just think about it, Ray. If you got paid for wins, yeah. If you want somebody else coming in, thank you. You know, you think you need to do the job, and you know, back then, maybe maybe the. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe the game's passed me by, but and maybe the game, the pitchers are better now. I will say this: if Mariano Rivera had been in our bullpen, I probably would have only pitched eight, to be quite honest. Or maybe, you know, Eck, if Eck had been out there or Raleigh, I would have said, "Hey, you know, Earl, Dick, whatever, whoever is managing, you know, I'm going to get you 24 outs, and then you can manage." Right. Yeah. Jimmy, what was it like? Uh, and and I know this is kind of a loaded question. The manager, Earl Weaver, I know playing against him, he seemed to be a fiery manager. You played for him. What was that like? Well, did you play for Dick Williams? Yes, I did. Was he a good guy? Was he a nice guy or was he a really good manager? Uh, He was a great manager, but, you know, he was hard-nosed, which probably what made him such a great manager. Okay, so Earl Weaver – First of all, you know, he, we, we, he didn't have many meetings. We, we were losing some games in Milwaukee once, and he says, okay, everybody turn around and face the middle of the uh, of the room. So we had to turn around in our schools, and he said, you guys don't want to win badly enough. He said, you know, uh, he, he, we're, not get, we're not scoring guys from third with less than two outs. He said, I never left a guy at third base, um, you know, with less than two mm-hmm. outs. And Dave McNally, who won 20 games for us out of Montana for four, four times, said, yeah, but you never played higher in double A. And we were never missed a beat. He said, and the <laughs> other thing is – he said, and this is the total truth. He said, you know, the game's not over till you make the final out on the road. Yeah. You know, you get 27 outs, and I refuse to make the last out of the game. And I, you know, we're sitting in County Stadium. You know, it's yeah. it's where Hank Aaron played yeah. and Eddie Matthew with over 500 home runs. And you know, Musial came in there. Probably Ted Williams played in an All Star game there. And I'm going, Babe Ruth, maybe Luke Gehrig, maybe DiMaggio, yeah, maybe some of the greatest players that ever played. Don't you think that maybe they made the last out of the game? And here's <laughs> Our five six manager telling me he refused to make the last out of the game, so I raised my hand. He goes, and we had this kind of relationship. He says, "What do you want?" Yeah. And I said, "We all know why you never made the last out of the game, Earl. They used to always pinch it for you." So anyway, with that, he told us that the meeting was over. So we had we kind of had that relationship, but 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 you got to think about it. You know, both of us ended up in the uh, the Hall of Fame, yeah. um, and. When I got in the Hall of Fame, you know, you try to thank your parents and your little league coaches and all the people that helped you and, uh, you know, your teammates and, you know, I mean, just down the list. But it's a bucket list of all the guys that helped you get to the Hall of Fame. But the one thing about Earl, you know, we had a love-hate relationship. He never shook my hand after I won because he said, what am I going to do when you lose? I said, well, how about getting them, you know, four days from now? How about that? That's a suggestion. And he goes, 
I'll do what I want to do. And I said, yeah, I know that. <laughs> so, but anyway, but just think about it. You know, I got there, I hurt my shoulder, so I'm, I'm out half of 67 and 8. Earl takes over at 68. You know, he moves down Buford to left field, becomes one of the best leadoff guys. I get healthy. McNally wins 12 games in a row. He's arms well. So, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, Frank Robinson had, had, had the concussion. Everybody's kind of getting back to where we are. We got Rettman and Moten and Davey May. You know, we got about five or six guys that could play every day in the outfield. Got Belanger, Robinson with 16 gold gloves, Davey Johnson, eventually Gritch. And so we got really good teams. So you just, but think about the fact that Earl had one year deals from 68 all the way to 1980. Wow. And he gave me the ball every four days. Every four days, the ball was in my locker when I would come on the day I was supposed to pitch. Now, we didn't get along. He was impossible. He wanted me, if I pitched 323 innings, he wanted me to pitch 330. If I pitched eight and a third, he wanted me to pitch, you know, a complete game. If I pitched, you know, nine innings and the game went 10 or 11, which we did do on occasion, pitch extra innings, he wanted me to do that. So he pushed me. He prodded me. But he gave me the ball every four days. And back then, as you know, we didn't make a lot of money. So World Series checks were really important. And you know what? Every year we went to spring training. I mean, I was really lucky. We had clubs that if we played well and we did what we were, you know, kind of studied to do coming up through the minor leagues, we had a good chance to win. Well, speaking of checks, Jim, you know, when I was growing up, if you went into into a, a department store, there you were jockey underwear it, it was amazing what was that experience like for you i mean it wasn't like you were a new york yankee but here you are in every department store and and, and everybody's buying underwear because of you what was that experience like well i was trying to figure out a way that i didn't have to you know you, i got to baltimore when i was 19 you know i got married at 18 you know, going to arizona state got married at 18 you know married in a ball Get to the big leagues, you know, but didn't think I was going to, you know, the year we won the World Series, I thought I was going to the minors. Everybody got hurt in spring training. I went 15 games. Um, so, you know, you're always, and then I hurt my arm, and, you know, you bought a house. You're trying to, you know, you're making, you know, $7,000, 7500 15 yep. You know, you, you're not making a lot of money. And, you know, Reggie Reggie played with us for in 76 and then got a big contract. But I I was, I think, smart enough to realize why I was winning a lot of games. I mean, I had some of the best teammates that ever played. And not only the Hall of Famers, you know, not only the Brooks Robinsons and the Frank Robinsons and the, the Robin Roberts and the Eddie Murrays and the Cal Ripkins, but, the, you know, Paul Blair with eight gold gloves and Belanger with eight gold gloves. And, I mean, you name it. You know, always pitch with good staffs. like to think that I had something to do with mentoring them after Robin Roberts taught me about doing that. But at the end of the day, I didn't want to leave Baltimore. You're raising your children. They're going to school. You know, you, you know, Baltimore back then, it was a great sports town. You had the Colts. You had the, you know, before they moved to Indianapolis. It was, you know, a great place to raise your kids. Uh, you know, 50 minutes from Washington, get on the train. You're in New York, two and a half hours, Philly, 90 miles. You got the uh, mountains. You got the bay. You got, you know, it was, it was a really nice place to live. So uh, I get a call instead of a speech. Uh, Keith Morris from Sports Illustrated, hey, do you want to be part of the underwear ads? And I was one of nine guys. Yeah. And they asked me to come back the next year. And then they took a year off. And then they said, we want to, you know, as the singular spokesperson, you know, you look good in the underwear. Not as good as a model would have looked because they could have gotten guys that look a lot better than me. But see, the universal part of doing what I did for Jockey was 
women buy men's underwear. 75% of men's underwear is bought by women back then. So they wanted somebody that looked decent enough so when women saw the ads, they would say, oh, okay. And then men aren't threatened by baseball players because most men would like to have been able to do what I was lucky enough to do, you know, pitch in the World Series, pitch in All-Star Games, play Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. So I did about 20, 25 store appearance for Jockey, did the ads. Probably the best story, though, is Bill Farley. You know, I'm waiting for a car in Chicago on a Sunday, on a Saturday morning. It's a beautiful day. And this guy walks by and he goes, wait a minute, you're Jim Palmer. Hi, I'm Bill Farley. I own Union Underwear. We make 40% of the underwear in the United States, private labels, so on and so on. Big department stores. He said, he said you know, one of the big mysteries in life is how Jockey, who has 8% of the market, Everybody thinks they're the, the biggest underwear house in the United States. And I looked at Bill, and I just met him, and I said, you know, obviously you have the wrong people working for you, Bill. <laughs> so he, he starts laughing, and I said, um, he said, no, no, you do a great job. I said, listen, I just I work with Bill Herman, who was the director of advertising. He was smart enough to understand the dynamic of baseball and, you know, women buying underwear and blah, blah, blah. So I did store appearances. I met baseball fans, you know, underwear fans, you know, well, Hey, try doing a Macy's appearance in downtown San Francisco in 1978 or 1980 with three or 400 people there and people come in and, you know, in underwear and raincoats and, you know, body stockings and purple hair and all that. So, um, I had a good time. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Hey, it was, but you know, I'd get on a plane because they did so much advertising and flight attendant who said, Hey, you're the, the, the middle guy in the third row. I said, I guess that's one way to uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, look at who I am, you know, and then, you know, you'd win 20 games and next year they said, Hey, that's an underwear model. And I said, yep, that's what I do. So <laughs> I actually, do. actually autographed, um, you know, my youngest or my oldest daughter's name, Jamie. And I, I wrote, I, you know, we used to have underwear posters to give away, you know, cause Farrah Fawcett was doing underwear posters. So we, we'd raised the money for cystic fibrosis. I had you know, a good friend would had two kids with CF and, you know, the life expectancy back there was about 12 years, right? So I, I to my oldest daughter, I go to Jamie, best wishes, dad, and then she and put it, hung it on her wall. So when she came home from school, she would get used to the fact that, I, yes, I was her father, but I also did underwear. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> hey, Jimmy, can't thank you enough for uh, your time. And I know there's so much that uh, could be talked about, but what a tremendous career and Probably the biggest thing with what has happened, we miss seeing you, miss seeing you come to the Bay Area, miss seeing you in Baltimore. Well, tell everybody, hey, tell everybody, get their shots, stay, stay safe, wear your mask, and uh, maybe we'll get out of this and maybe we can get back to having a more normal life. And meanwhile, you know, you're, you're very lucky because, you know, Bob Melvin spent, I don't yeah. know what, about three years in, in Baltimore back in the early 90s. And one of, one of my favorite guys, we text all the time, um, you know, so it, it's hard not to, not to root. And, you know, I mean, I try, like I said, I try not to root for either the Orioles or the team because it's, it's baseball and the best team should win. But it's hard not to root for the uh, for the A's, and uh, you know, especially when Bo Mel is uh, managing the ball club, and he's such a good guy. So I hope they have a great uh, rest of the season, and, and everybody that watches them and roots for them will stay healthy. And, uh, you know, like I said, we can get back to a little more normalcy. That would be nice. You guys take care of yourself, too. All right, Jimmy. Well, Bob Melvin's the best, just like you. So thanks for your time, buddy. Appreciate it. Okay. You, you're welcome, guys. Take care. How good was that? Ray Fossey with the Hall of Famer, Jim Palmer. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, 
you went into the department store, it was Jim Palmer wearing jockey, and it was everywhere. He was a star. More than just the 20 games, more than just the All-Star games, more than the Cy Young Award. He was the guy in underwear. <laughs> He's Jim Palmer. I mean, I never got to see him pitch, but uh, from all the hearing all the stories about the underwear and ads and being the being being a part of the last uh, rotation of four 20-game winners, uh, well, we saw one 20-game winner this year, and he didn't even start game five yesterday. So to be truly part of one of something special was remarkable. But You know, I uh, thought about that, you know, going forward. You know, if you got a guy that's only going to go six – is it smart to get him to pitch later in the game? I mean, first you got to get the ball to him with a relatively good score, like they did last night. And then you let the guy go six, and he's eating up really important innings. The only problem with that theory is if the guy that comes out first doesn't pitch well, then you're like, well, if you would have had that guy starting and he would have been his norm, but maybe the new normal, we don't know what the new normal is going to be. Is that smart? If we are not going to allow anybody to go long in games, unless you've got like a no hitter going or it's complete dominance with a low pitch count, what's the smartest way to handle a pitching staff? You know, on this day, this reliever starting it. I want you to give me two. If you only give me one, whatever. And, you know, and then you have that big arm, your best arm, which is your starter. You bring him in in the third, the fourth. You bring him in the fourth. He can finish the game out. Yeah, I, I, I like the way they handled that. Joining us next right now. I like the way they handled it though. I thought Canable pitched well, and then Gratterall was meh, and then Orius did the job. Yeah. Glenn, welcome back to A's Cast Live. I know it's been a tough couple days for all of us, but I think, you know, as somebody that worked with Ray as much as you did, it had to be devastating. Um, hi, Tony. It's it's great to talk to you. I wish with all my heart we were talking about something else. Um, yeah, this 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 is this is a this is bad. I I, I I don't know. I, I'm I'm having trouble, you know, putting it into words. The last couple of days, I just uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm really I'm heartbroken about it. You know, I knew he was sick. I didn't know how sick. Um, so yeah, a lot a lot of emotions the last couple of days, and and I don't think that's going to change for a while. No, I agree with you, and I think what we've done today here on Ace Cast Live is we've told some stories, but in the end. I think what Ray would want us to do is is be positive and talk about, you know, talk about his career, not only as a broadcaster, as a player, and look back fondly on him. He wouldn't he wouldn't want us moping. He wouldn't want us crying because that's not who Ray Fossey is. No, he would not. Um, you know, when you worked with Ray and and first pitch was about to be thrown, you better be upbeat and ready to go because he was every single game. It was amazing. Uh, he was ready to roll, man. Um, so you're right. He, he would want us to, to have some fun today. He would want us to laugh a little bit. Um, and he would not want us to be down, that's for sure. 
you know, I think about you replacing Greg Papa, and it was a really big deal. Talk about what that was like when you, you, you know, you're now going to be the TV face of the A's and you're doing it with a guy, Ray Fossey, who has been around forever. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, I do think back on that quite often for, you know, hundreds of different reasons, how lucky I was to get the gig um, and then work with somebody like Ray, who, you know, our family knew for a long time, which certainly helped. He was beyond gracious. Um, you know, he, he, he just made me feel right away. Like, like, what's the big deal? You know, you're, you're, you're fine. Let's go. Let's just do this. You know, he never, he never coached me. He never, you know, it wasn't like pep talks with him. He just, it was like, okay, you're the guy, you're going to be great. And, you know, let's go. There was never any, any, okay, we got to sit down and meet because we're going to be working together. You know, he was not into that. You know, he knew that everything was going to be fine. And, you know, as it turns out, you know, you know, I mean, you know, we worked with Dallas this year, last year, some, but, but Ray's the only guy that I've ever really worked with, you know, from day one, uh, you know, outside of Dallas the last couple of years. So, you know, that's another reason why this is hard. I mean, he was, he was my guy, you know? Um, so yeah, it's very strange. I, I still can't believe it's happened and I don't know that I will ever fully sink in and then you're going to get to spring training and he's not going to be there and it's going to kind of creep up again and, you know, make you feel, make you feel kind of, kind of strange again, but what can you do? You know, when I was in Cleveland with you guys and Ray was like, come with me, we're going out to heritage park and he took me out to heritage park and I, I, you know, I think about you as a kid watching your brother and watching Ray. And I think it is special that Ray's plaque is right next to your brother's plaque. And so I did I did like a, a long form. It, it was it was a green and gold history. I think we were out there for 30 minutes at Heritage Park. I know he was so proud to have that plaque. I'm sure your brother, Dwayne, feels the same way. And, 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 you know, watching Ray as a kid and then working with him had to be like, wow. Well, it was, I mean, yeah, it was, yeah, it was really cool because I, I do, I, I, I remember clearly and Ray used to get mad when I told this story because it said it, it made him feel old and he did not like that. But I remember meeting Ray when I was 13 years old when he went back to Cleveland in 1976 and his locker was three, four lockers down from my brother's. And I remember meeting him, you know, these guys were larger than life to me. We've had that conversation many times, Tony, you know, with Eck and, and, you know, Buddy Bell and and those guys from the Indians in the mid seventies, they were like my heroes. So I remember how I looked up to all of them when I was a kid. And now I remember it, it, thinking how much fun it was going to be to work with Ray where, where maybe not on the air, but even off the air where I could tell him things I remembered from, from those times as a kid to see if he would remember them. And he did, he remembered all the memories that I had. Um, so yeah, that, that I think added something to it. And I also think that part of it where, you know, he was a teammate of my brothers. He knew me. I think that made him accept me as his partner 
much faster and he really wasn't really worried about there not being a connection. I think he knew that there was already a connection and, you know, I, I think that helped our situation when we started working together um, because we, we had a lot of things in common in, in kind of a strange way, you know, um, even though, you know, he was a player when I was just a kid, but there, there was a lot of things that we used to talk about from those, those, even just a couple of years in Cleveland, but we always would laugh a lot because they were memories that he had as a player, but they were memories that I had as, as a, you know, a kid in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. We saw X response on Twitter about Ray's passing. Uh, I'm sure you've talked to your brother about it. How tough was it for your brother? Brutal. I mean, I called him soon after I found out and he broke down. He, he didn't know. He didn't you know, obviously didn't know. I, I got a call from Devin Fox, my boss at NBC. Um, so yeah, he was crushed. I mean, he's known Ray. Gosh, I mean, you know, you think about it, uh, you know, playing against each other and with each other, you know, you're, you're talking 50 years here, you know? Um, yeah. Brutal, you know, and, and talking peers, you know, around the same age, so much in common. Um, so yeah, listen, it's, it's, just, it's devastating for really anybody who knew Ray. And then if you knew him close, like we all did, it's even worse. And, you know, and I feel bad for the fans. Um, you know, fans love the guy, and and he, he that that was well deserved, and he loved him back. And you know, they're 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 losing out on, on on somebody super important to them as well. You know, we talked about it earlier with Ken Korak, and I think you'll understand this as much as anybody. It's just when you look at the fan base and you take the fan base all the way to the seventies and take the fan base all the way to where we are today, raise the one guy that can merge the entire fan base like nobody else. And you got to live it almost on a daily basis. Yeah, and that's a, that's really a, a, a great point Tony. And I'm glad you brought it up because I think that's, there are many, many reasons why Ray, was so popular with the fans but i think i think what you just said is maybe the main reason because he did he was really the only person that intertwined all these different great eras of oakland A's baseball right i mean played in the 70s that's a big deal won championships in the 70s so you have that as your base um, and and then you stay with the team and you work and then you become a broadcaster for the team which is important right it's important for fans um, and then you're there for the, you know, the, the great teams of the late, the late, uh, you know, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, that great era. And, you know, the raised there with Bill King and Lon Simmons, right? I mean, come on, talk about weaving everything together. And then he's there for every great era in Oakland A's history. And that alone, nobody Nobody else can say that except maybe Steve Usenich, right? I mean, if you really think about it. Um, so, the, you know, that's, I think that deep down is the main reason why his popularity was so big with, with fans. And then you throw on the fact that he was, he loved the ace. I mean, his life revolved around the ace. He wasn't afraid to let people know that. He was passionate. He wanted his team to win. Plus, and then on top of everything, Tony, he was just a sweet man, as as you know, we all found out. Uh, how many times did we say he's he's the most he's the 
the perfect grumpy but lovable guy. We love that guy, right? I mean, I mean, it was, he was perfect, right? Um, and so he he really he really is the Oakland A's if you if you stop and think about all he did for that organization, and I, I hope he gets recognized for that. And he would all in in your guys' broadcast. He'd always mention your family. He'd always mention your son. He was always cognizant of what was happening, you know, behind the curtain with you as your family was as your family was growing. Yeah, and and you know, and so was his with grandkids, you know, and and you know, yeah. I mean, how many times did he mention my my son my son's name on here? You know. Yeah. And yeah, stuff like that, that, that makes it hard, you know, I mean, he, he knew what was going on and he, he really cared about, you know, my family and it was a, it was a genuine concern and is everything going well? And you know, how's, how's your son and daughter doing? And, you know, and, and that, and I think the, one of the joys he got too was he would tell me about his grandkids, you know, and Ray's private. You know, you know how private he was. He didn't talk to everybody about a whole lot. Uh, he just, he just was not open with people, but there were certain people that he was. I, I think I'm in that category. Thank goodness. And he would tell me things about his grandkids, and things he was excited about. And, you know, that's, that's another thing that has made this really hard because you start thinking about things like that, you know, like he was at a perfect age to enjoy his grandkids. Uh, and that, that's another thing that just really, really hits me hard. And it really makes me sad. You know, he said to me, gosh, I think it was right at the beginning of the year. And I think he mentioned it on the air. In fact, I know he did. He was so proud that his oldest grandson was, He's a really good athlete, and I remember him saying, you know what, we're really excited. My oldest grandson, Matthew, is going to be a freshman in high school. And he's going to play quarterback, and, and I'm going to get a chance to see him play. And I, you know, you hear stuff like that, and now you think about how he's going to miss stuff like that. And that just, it just, it just gets me to the core that that stuff was so important to him, and, and he's just not going to experience it. Yeah, that's uh, that's really really tough. But you know, I think as a partner, the scariest thing for me, if I was a play-by-play guy, is if I went into the booth with a guy that I knew wasn't prepared, that really didn't care. I mean, I can't imagine like like all of a sudden you have to carry the entire broadcast because this guy's just a former player and he's relying on his name and his career. That would be a nightmare. How great was it? You never had to do that because you knew the guy to your right was as prepared as anybody in the ballpark. Yeah, and I've you know, listen, I've I've I, I've had the other you know other side of it with fill in guys, and it doesn't mean they weren't good. It just means they were never going to be as prepared as Ray. He was immensely prepared. Uh, he had he had notes from every at bat and. Uh, it, it was no, that was never anything I was at all worried about. He was he was over prepared times five. Um, 
So no, that was not an issue. I knew it right off the bat. He taught me a lot. In fact, you know, he taught me just by watching him and seeing what he kept track of. I learned from that and I kept track of different things that I probably wouldn't have thought of without seeing what he was doing. Um, so, you know, he was a great teacher just by, just by example, you know, he was never like, Hey, you should do this. Never, never one time did he say that, but I watched what he was doing and I watched what he was keeping track of. And it was very impressive. And I know he's kept every book from every year he's ever broadcast. And, uh, you know, somebody's going to get a chance to look at that someday and talk about Oakland A's history. I oh my. But uh, he was, yeah, he was on top of it always, always. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a story how on top of it he was, and I'll make it quick for you, Tony. We were on a, we were on the plane. We were flying somewhere, and we sat next to each other on the plane. And a couple days before that, he had missed a game. Um, I, I don't know why. He, he, he wasn't there for a game. Um, and, he, and he was not able to watch it or listen to it. He, I'm not sure what the reason was, but. So we got on the plane, and this was a couple days later, and I was watching him, and he had got his phone out. And, you know, if you go to the MLB app and you can go back and look at the games and you can go to every inning and you go to every batter, right? He was doing that, and he was, he was filling out his scorebook, keeping score by looking at every person's at bat and writing down what they did. He did that the whole, he did that for an entire trip to the East Coast, just because he didn't want to miss that one game and not have that one game in his scoreboard. And it took him about three and a half hours, and he did it all. Um, and I was like, wow. He just spent four hours making sure that he had just one random game in his scorebook because he didn't want his scorebook to be incomplete. And it was a random game. You know, it was the Blue Jays Tuesday night in June, right? It just, it was not a, it was, you know, he had to have his book full. And I, I, I always remember that. And that's how he went about his business. I was always so impressed because I, I can't do this. Like, I, 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 I don't have the attention span to chart every pitch, strike, ball, strike, ball. I, <laughs> He, no. Every single pitch he put in his scorebook no. so he could tell you that guy in the sixth inning, it was a 2-2 curveball. I'm like, how no. do you pay attention like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, he, he had, he'd, he'd hold two pens in his hand. One was a red one. One was a black one. I think red was for a strike. Black was for a ball. And he marked it down every single pitch. You know, so he knew how, how many pitches went to every batter. He could remember what pitch it was. Um, yeah, I mean, it just and it, it never wavered. I mean, that's just the way he went about his business. And and you know what, Tony, he loved every single minute of it. That was that was that was one of the great things about him. He enjoyed every minute of everything that had to do with baseball. You know, I, I don't think people truly realize when when you go behind the curtain what it's like where. You know, you guys traveled together. You guys traveled all around the country. It's the same thing with the players and whether it's trainers or you mentioned Steve Vucinich or Bob Melvin and the coaching staff. It's a traveling party on, uh, on buses and planes. 
Uh, so you get real close and you get to know each other real well. And I asked Ken Korak yep. this, and we'll, we'll end with this, not to get too emotional, but, you know, what, what's the one thing on a day-to-day basis you think you'll miss? Well, I think I'll miss his enthusiasm just for being at the ballpark. I mean, he just loved being at the ballpark. It was his, it was his place, man. You know, uh, and it, it just, you could tell. He walked in that booth. And, you know, he lit up, he was ready to go. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's what I'll miss. Just his, his overall enthusiasm for not just the A's. I mean, he was enthusiastic for the A's obviously, but he just loved being at the park. Um, that's all he knew, right? That was his thing. That was his life. Um, and we used to, you know, we used to always say, Ray, why don't you take a day off, man? I mean, you know, but he just did not want to not be at the ballpark. Um, so I'll always remember that. And, you know, the, the closeness that we had. And, and that's one of the things, too, that, that I'm, I'm having a little trouble getting past Tony is, um, you know, we spent all this time together. But I never, I never really got a chance to say goodbye to him. Um, and that's that's a hard one for me because I mean you know it's 18 years together and then you just didn't get a chance to really say goodbye and now he's gone you know so there's things that that you sort of gonna have to wear for a while and that's a hard one for me um, but you know there's there's just nothing you can do about it well, we appreciate the time. We know it's very tough, and I'm sure we're going to be seeing each other very, very soon. But thank you. We appreciate it. And uh, keep your head up, my man, because you guys had a great run together. All right. Thanks, Tony. And uh, let's talk again soon under better circumstances, okay? Take care. See you, bud. I mean, that, that's, that's almost like a marriage. I mean, you, you he... He was literally with Ray more than he was his wife during the baseball season. I mean, you got to realize when you're traveling on these planes and buses and hotels and going all over the place, you're not at home. Then, then, then you think about when you get back from a road trip, what happens? You get home on Sunday night. By the way, good chance you got to be back at the ballpark on Monday. And you got to be at the ballpark like what? You know, for us, we get there, what, 2, 2.30, whatever? We get there probably a little bit earlier than some of these guys because we got the A's cast live. But, I mean, that's a it. broadcasting, play, you know, playing, you know, that's a whole different animal. You're playing for a lot of money. But broadcasting, it takes you away from your wife, your kids. You're basically gone even when you're homestand, I mean, you've got to leave for the ballpark before your kids get home from school. Now, I've heard many guys say, I'll just get up even though I'm, I'm dog tired just to make my kids breakfast and I can kiss them and hug them before they go to school because I'm not going to see them till the next morning because you don't get home till late. It's not an easy lifestyle at all. I mean, I've, I've experienced it for many, many years. I'm just fortunate when the A's go on the road that I do everything from home. So I, so when the A's go on the road, that's where I get my dad time. You know, I can be with my kids. 
And even though that I'm working and watching the game and doing everything, I get to see them and hug them and kiss them. These guys, they're on the road. They're a traveling. It's like a carnival. They're they're going city to city, sleeping in. Hey, they may be great hotels, but they're hotels. At some point, does it matter how nice a Four Seasons is? Or Ritz-Carlton? When you're on like a 12-day, 10-game road trip? I mean, at some point, it's like, oh. I mean, it's a grind. And, you know, replacing Greg Papa was not easy. And Glenn's done a great job. And uh, I think that Cleveland connection was big for their relationship. No doubt about it. The fact that, as Glenn said, he grew up watching it. His brother Dwayne played. And, yeah, I mean, you start thinking about the ages of, like, the Giants broadcast team. I mean, it's... Father time always wins. It's just a reality. But the one thing everybody will know, no one, no, everybody wants to take a day off, right? Ray Fossey never wanted to take a day off. Unless he had, he, 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 so his birthday and his wedding anniversary are on the same day. Now that was a day Ray was cool taking off. I wonder how many in his career he took off, but I know he would take that day off. But Ray believed it, and that's how that's that's what his generation of players. You didn't. There was no hey, take the day off, just take a little BP, go shower, put your uni on, have something to eat at the spread, and just sit there and watch the game. That's not that generation. Their generation was, and you heard Jim, I think Jim Palmer and Ray are laughing at making $7,000 a year. Guys are complaining about the qualifying offer at $18.4 million. And you have some of the greatest players, they're making seven grand for the season, and then they got to get jobs in the offseason. I know this. We're going to miss him. We love him. But I think we did him justice today. And if he's looking down, he'd be proud. I agree. And you mentioned Jim Palmer. I I wanted to get this in. Jim Palmer actually did tweet about Ray as well. I went and looked back. Because today's Jim Palmer's birthday, which is actually kind of, uh, I I guess, ironic or coincidental, however however you want to look at it. But he said, so sorry to hear about the passing of Ray Fossey. I knew him as a rival and friend. So Jim Palmer put him as both. Uh, loved baseball so much, and he, will always, he always had the biggest smile and the strongest handshake. He will be missed. It made me think when he said that the strongest handshake. Do you remember when we had Howie Rose on, the voice of the Mets? Yes, where they, they, have the, they, they had the controversy of, did Ray tag Bud Harrelson? Ray says yes. Howie says no. So there's that whole thing. But I pulled the audio of Howie Rose talking about something about uh, Ray Fossey that um, he, he doesn't look forward to. And uh, here's what he said. I met Ray the first time the Mets and A's played uh, an interleague schedule. And, um, I, I mean, I just felt Ray's the kind of guy who you meet him for five minutes, you feel like you've known him all your life. Um, I just love talking to him. I don't remember exactly when the last time I would have seen him was, probably about two, three years ago. Uh, we were scheduled to go to Oakland this year. So, yeah, they came to us. It would have been three years ago. I just last week got the feeling back in my right hand 
after our most recent handshake. He's got the strongest handshake of anybody, perhaps, that I've ever shaken hands with. Yes, you have to be, like, for anybody out there who's going to interact with Ray, you have to make sure you get your hand in there and you prepare, because it's a vice grip. If you don't, he'll crush your hand. I mean, you really have to be conscious uh, of when you go in that you got to get your hand all the way in there and squeeze hard, because if you don't, it, it's, it's not going to be a good experience. Well, I would suggest going to the elbow, but then you'll end up needing Tommy John. <laughs> So that just shows you – I mean, I love all the handshake stuff. And then, you know, one thing I found, too, I was going back to look, and, and we talked about it before with Ray, is uh, when he – the whole story about how he told uh, Gio Gonzalez that he was going to win 20 games. You remember that whole – that he yeah. thought he knew that Gio was going to win 20 games? And the, the audio was only 30 seconds. This is what – I mean, Gio Gonzalez talked about it, and I went back and found it. Here's Gio Gonzalez on uh, Ray Fossey telling him he's going to win 20 games. Your, your opportunity never ends, and, you know, they have such great coaching staff, great people to always be around. You know, I had Ray for the first time. Ray Fossey tell me I was, you know, I remember he pulled me to the side. He goes, I've caught plenty of 20-game winners, and I think you're a 20-game winner. And the year we, I ended up winning 21, I called Ray, and I said I, I thought of you the whole time when that was happening. So those are the memories that was left behind and, and all the excitement and the people that were put in my, you know, put in my – journey to where I'm at now was unbelievable. We'll end on this. Ray Fossey loved baseball. Ray Fossey loved the A's. And we loved him. And I guarantee you, we will honor him in the 2022 season as well as we have ever honored anybody. And I'll do my part in A's Cast Live will also do our part. A very tough day today. We want to thank Vince Catronio, Ken Korak, and Glenn Kuyper for coming on the program to honor their great friend and one of the greatest A's of all time. Thank you for listening to A's Cast Live. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 